Friends, thanks again for tuning in to the Yes You Can Play Guitar podcast. Susan Rogers, legendary producer of Prince, the Purple Rain album. You know, I got to tell you guys a story, and I'll tell you the story really quick. In the 80s, when I was just a kid growing up, I knew about Prince. I knew he could sing. I, I had a recollection of him playing a little bit of guitar, maybe. But I just assumed that he was, like a lot of people, that he was just an entertainer, singer, performer. Put him in the Michael Jackson category. Would hear things from about him from time to time. So I had no, a somewhat of an awareness of who he was. But I started my channel. If you look on my YouTube channel, you'll see that I started the channel. It might have been June or July of 2020. But that was not when I actually started working on my channel. Living situation was uh, very bad at the time. I was with someone who had a very bad personality disorder. And... My life was such chaos, so stressful. It was just so crazy. That would be a story for another time. I knew that I was on my way out of that relationship. I was just trying to safely find my way out of it. But once I knew, you know, life could settle down again and I could get grounded and, you know, have calm and peace in my life, I knew that a YouTube channel is what I wanted to do. So I started putting my work into the channel in August of 2021. You know, my life had changed for the better. And I was ready to start. And I knew going in with YouTube that, you know, you have to be committed. uh, You have to be consistent. I knew all the main things about it. But, you know, so I started my channel. And having been a guitar teacher and professional guitar player for many years, I started with, you know, guitar tips and a lot of guitar lessons and stuff. You know, the first year on YouTube, you don't even get into the algorithm, really. And then it might have been about November 2021. You know, I was getting a few views, but it was very slow. I said, I'm going to do something a little different. So for a lot of musicians, I did a big no-no. I started doing some reaction videos. And I think the one of the first ones I did was the, the famous Prince Hall of Fame While My Guitar Gently Weeps guitar solo. And from there, I started getting, my channel started growing a bit more, and I started having... A lot of Prince fans come over to my channel, and so I started doing a few more Prince reactions, and it was a very fascinating deep dive. You know, I met some wonderful friends, a very good one by the name of The Solitary Adventurer. He's from England, and he's a very well he's a very um, educated and cataloged Prince fan. His knowledge of Prince lore is uh, immense. You can go on my YouTube channel and look up some of my discussions with him tongue-in-cheek i'd call him the prince super fan but i got a bit of a backlash from some of the prince fans but but all in all the prince fan community they've been very good to me very kind very supportive of my channel and uh when we started interviewing uh big names associated associated with prince in his past the solitary adventure would join me for the conversation so it was kind of cool because i knew a lot of the technical end of things and he knew more of the historical uh, chronological end of things so you can hear him in this uh interview with susan rogers and uh you know by the time this interview happened i learned a lot about prince and a lot about purple rain a lot about his history and uh you know how how amazing and interesting of a person susan rogers is and uh man she told us some incredible stories it's a good lesson this is another good one to uh buy download and listen to while you're going on a long drive or just, you know, doing stuff around the yard or in the house. And uh, it was, she really told us some really cool stuff. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Even half as much as I enjoyed taking part in this really in-depth interview with this really amazing person from Princess History, Susan Rogers. Remember, guys, 
Don't forget, if you check out my YouTube channel, Yes, You Can Play Guitar, don't forget to hit subscribe. It takes one click. Helps me out a lot. And check out my Patreon communities. I've got two. If you're into my reactions, join my reaction community. We always have a lot of extra perks, like a lot of videos that aren't on YouTube. A lot of them that were blocked. You know, sometimes when I do interviews, like the one I did with Susan Rogers, we have extra footage that I share only with my Patreons. My Patreons, you know, they can get their questions asked to these people in the interviews with a shout out. You know, we have all these uh, group chats, sometimes with special guests. It's a really cool Patreon community. My other community that I'm going to be launching is uh, my guitar community. So there'll be like licks and tabs and gear talk and lessons and all kinds of cool stuff on that. Really, you know, good for any guitar player, but for the beginner or the struggling guitar player, I think it'll be really have special value. So you want to check that out. Patreon reaction community is patreon.com slash yes, you can play guitar. The guitar community is patreon.com slash YYCPG guitar community. So here it is, our interview with Susan Rogers back in September 2022. Everyone, Brian here for Yes You Can Play Guitar. Joining me is our good friend of the channel and my go-to when it comes to Prince, the solitary adventurer. And it's our absolute pleasure today to have with us, so graciously, uh, Susan Rogers. She's an engineer for Prince, and also she is a professor at Berklee School of Music in Boston. That's my understanding. How are you doing today, Susan? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? We're doing very well. good. We understand that you have a book coming out. Yeah, um, it was. A, it took three years to write, but I was invited a few years ago by a, a fellow named Ogi Ogas, who's a professional co-author, <clears throat> and he asked, "Would I like to record, or rather, record? I'm looking at the word record here. Would I like to uh, write a book about music?" And I said, "Well, um, that would be a bad idea because I'm not a musician. I don't play anything. I don't write. I don't sing. Uh, I'm not an expert on music. What I'm an expert in is music listening. That's what I've done as a record maker all these years, and what my my PhD training is in that. So I said, we can write a book about music listening." And he said, great, and uh, put a, an awful lot of work into it. It's called, This Is What It Sounds Like, a little homage to <laughs> Prince and When Dubs Cry. It's called, This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. And it's all about, we listen to music, what our brain is doing when it's processing the music that we love. I mean, mm -hmm. all of us have our personalized listener profile that formed over the years and accounts for us having a reaction that says that guitar solo is perfect, that tone is perfect, that timing is perfect or not. All of us have this unique profile that was shaped over years that um, is unique to us, which is why we can never be a music snob. I mean, what yes. you think is perfect might be different from what I think and from what Chris thinks. And we're, we're all ever so slightly different, which is what makes music different. That's what it's about. It'll be out in uh, September 20th. Fascinating. And in terms of what you've, you've seen in your studies and obviously the going into the writing of the book, has that forced you to reassess 
some of the work that you've done with with artists and what it is that actually made them you know hit makers or pop hit makers the reassessment came when i transitioned out of being a recording engineer and went into college as a freshman so i was in the music business for 22 years mostly in the 80s and 90s and I had a big hit record as a producer with Bare Naked Ladies in the late 90s. So I took that money and I entered college as a freshman, University of Minnesota. I did eight straight years and got my PhD. While I was in college, I kept learning so many amazing things in neuroscience classes and in music cognition classes and psychoacoustics. And when I'd learned these things, I'd think to myself, oh, if only I had known that when I was in the music business. If only I had known that. And many times I'd think, oh, now that makes sense. Now I get it. So the book I've written is a culmination of two decades, you know, being in that control room and, and listening to great performers like Prince and assessing these performances and these sounds, plus knowing a little bit more now about how that's actually working for each one of us as individuals, how that how that works. So yeah, all, all that reassessment came when I was in college and was able to tie those two worlds together. And any any hints for us? Is there a, a formula to creating a hit now? No, I don't think there is. It will always be, there will always be too many factors because our taste is constantly rolling forward. And as many of the great artists say, everything influences you. So this whole life, this whole world is constantly influencing artists who are constantly changing the shape of what music is to feed this world that's out there clamoring for music. So it's constantly changing to be able to say, oh, here's the formula. And now that you have the formula, you can make a hit record. Yeah, it's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. We're all, all 7 billion of us are unique. So what you need to do, as I, I'm trying to argue in the book, is don't try to please everyone. Find your people and please your people. The people who like the music you like, who have the same value system as yours, they're going to have a similar listener profile to you. And that music that lights you up like a Christmas tree is probably going to light them up too. And everybody else who isn't into it, let them find their own music. There's enough for everyone. That's that's what I would advise. And I think in the arts, that's probably good advice. I think in this day and age as well, everyone seems to be finding their community online in much the yeah. same way that, you know, we came across Brian doing these reaction videos to Prince and we've, we've congregated around him. Well, you know, I think what Susan said, because I've heard her say that before in previous interviews, that's very powerful, even for someone running a YouTube channel, because finding your identity on YouTube uh, can be very tough. Susan, my journey, like I was always aware of Prince and how talented he was, but it wasn't until I started doing my reaction videos and people came on board and said, oh, you need to look into this. You need to look into this. And then after a while, I'm going, oh, my God, this guy's amazing. Like he, the way he can play so many instruments and like. How does he do this? So I'm still in that deep dive going like, where was I in the 80s and 90s with this guy? You know, like, yeah. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that because <clears throat> he truly was not a mere mortal, you know, no. and, and sit next to him and watch him go from instrument to instrument. Let me describe this. Imagine, so it would, sometimes it'd be just the two of us in the studio, his home studio. 
and um, the drums would be set up and I'd come in in the morning, I'd get the call, you know, he wants to record and come in in the morning and there'd be a note waiting for me on the console and it would say what instruments he wanted set up. And let's say that on this occasion, it was acoustic drums. So I would get everything routed and set up as fast as possible because he liked to work really quickly. This guy comes into the studio and he's got his lyric sheet on a piece of paper and tapes it up on a boom stand in front of the drum kit. He would sit at the drum kit, no headphones, no nothing, because he's not listening to anything, doesn't need a click. He'd sit at an acoustic drum kit, a Yamaha kit in the days when I was with him, hit record on the tape machine, and he'd play the whole song from beginning to end in perfect time with the perfect breaks. And he's looking at the lyric sheet and he's imagining the song in his head as he's playing the drum track with every breakdown and every fill and everything, listening to nothing. Comes in the room, hand him the bass. And of course I had to tune it for him and make sure everything was all ready to go. It was record ready. So I hand him his bass, he'll put on the bass part or he'll go to the keyboard and lay down the chord changes and then pick up the guitar and bam, 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 one instrument after another, stop halfway through, do his lead and background vocals, come back in, put on the embellishments. And we'd be there, a day was very often, you know, 16 or 20 hours long. And very, very often it was 24 or more. A 48 hour session was not unheard of, but finish up the song and print it and uh, get a few hours sleep and start another one. Most people don't work like that. And no. this kid, and he was a kid because he was in his 20s, would do this every day. It, you know, I one of the things I, I like to convey to the audience as just like I was a small regional musician, I you know, nothing too big, just a working regional grunt. But we'll watch like I'll do I'll watch his videos and then when I do my reaction, I say, I don't know if people really realize out there like what he's asking from the people that played with him. I guess one of the things that amazes me, he was so on top at an early age of how important the actual performance is. You can have the greatest musicians in the world, but if they're boring on stage, you might get a few music heads showing up to their gigs. But I mean, he was, I, so I say to people, I said, he's not just looking for musicians. He's looking for people that are going to move and some of them being athletic and doing some of the, uh, he had a mind for that at such a young age. And I don't age. And I don't think a lot of the people realize that everything that would go into their production and performance is live. That's such a good observation. Um, he would at rehearsal, he videotaped every rehearsal and uh, the rehearsals would go on. Well, we'd get there at 10 o'clock in the morning and by seven o'clock at night, we'd be done, but he'd have the musicians watch their performances during the lunch break and then afterward watch. He wanted them to understand what it looked like to the audience. Prince had a really keen sense of what people were perceiving when they perceived him and his band. Where that sense came from, I don't know, but he developed it really early. A lot of young musicians don't develop that. You, no. you normally hear with young musicians, even the virtuosos, I certainly see a lot of it at Berkeley, they're focused intently on playing every note right, on pitch and on time. And they think, sometimes they come into the recording studio and they think, well, that's it, that's what I have to do. I've got to play every note on time and it's got to be right. And they don't yet make the leap to understand you're actually communicating with that guitar in your hands. Tell me something, say something, talk mm -hmm. to me. 
And that takes maturity. You see it in older musicians, but in the yeah. young ones, it's just, you know, let me just get through this without making any mistakes. Hang on just a minute here. There's so much more. There's an overarching feeling that needs to be there in your performance if you're going to connect with people. I, I, this comes up a lot in our discussions, and I, I kind of look at things from a different angle from the working grunt musician perspective. But I've said to the Solitary Adventure many times, I said, where did he get to be so young? A lot of young musicians don't get it. Like he must have had a mentor in his life at some point. I said, you know, kid, you're an amazing musician, but it's what you're showing us. Look at yourself through the audience's eyes. That's the key. Like someone must have, or maybe he just had an innate sense to do that. I, that to me, that that fascinates me about him. It is fascinating. I can tell you what little bits I know. Of course, I didn't know him in childhood, but I've heard from others what it was like. I don't like saying this because no one wants to get there through this route, but Prince became who he was in large part due to an awful lot of pain, an awful lot of childhood pain. And mm -hmm. you wouldn't wish that on anybody. So a lot of kids, you know, they, 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 they're, they take music lessons and they're rewarded by their parents and their family and their friends for, oh, you're doing good, you, you, sound, you sound great. And they're in a happy bubble of sounding great when they're really young and, oh, aren't you cute? You know, you play, you sing, you're wonderful. Yeah, what if you didn't have that? So here, I'll share with you a story that Andre Simone told uh, at a gathering. Andre Simone was uh, a member of Prince's early band during the Dirty Mind era. And Andre was also Prince's childhood friend. So when Prince was a young man, his parents divorced. He lived with his mother and his stepfather and they were cruel. They were just cruel to him. And this is this is well-documented. Uh, they would lock him in his room and the poor little kid, I mean, he would be locked in a room with nothing but a lot of emotional pain and a lot of musical instruments. So the poor kid, and we're talking 11, 12, 13 years old, would be locked in his room playing. Uh, he escaped basically when he was about, I think 13 or 14 and Andre Simone's family took him in so Andre told the story that, you know, kids, they're in junior high and uh, they go to school during the day and they come home from school and you throw down your backpack and you run downstairs into the basement and there was recording equipment and musical instruments downstairs in the basement of this, this Minneapolis home. And the kids would all fiddle around a little bit playing and showing off for one another. And then eventually they'd go upstairs and they'd have dinner and they'd do their homework and watch TV and whatever. But Prince would stay in that basement and Andre said there were so many mornings when he would come downstairs for breakfast, Prince would be coming up from the basement and Prince would hand him a cassette and say, check this out, it's what I did last night. This kid was up all night in that basement at 14, 15 years old, writing and recording and playing and honing his skills. Most children don't do that, but I think of it a little bit like a slingshot, the emotional pressure of needing to escape that life pulls that slingshot so far back that when it's eventually released, when he eventually turns 18 and can escape, gets signed to a record deal when he's 18, and that escape velocity shoots him out way past mm -hmm. his garden variety competition because that pressure had been building for so many years. Of course, he had a mentor in his father. His father was a jazz pianist, um, but his father was only there some of the time. And his father was never hugely successful in his musical career. So Prince did, did this on his own. Yeah. 
it's fascinating when you, you talk about uh, the, the stories that Andre has and, and how throughout his life, it was almost like a sponge ability to, to take the knowledge that he needed from people and then move on. Did you teach him engineering and, and the tools like that in the studio? And what was he like as a student? It's funny. Um, he didn't want to know. He didn't want to know. He uh, His head was so full with the things he needed to know that uh, he, 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 when sitting at the console, of course, you've got the level controls with the fader and you've got the EQ, but everything else, like setting uh, reverbs and setting, setting delays, setting compressors and limiters, choosing microphones, all that, he, he left that up to his engineers and he didn't care. He didn't care. <laughs> he, uh, he taught me more than I taught him because I learned theoretically, like most engineers do, that there's a right way and a wrong way to do things. But when you work with Prince, you learn the right way is any way that gets that signal onto tape as fast as possible. <laughs> he did not care if it was technically imperfect. He did not care. The only thing that mattered to him is that wh whoever was engineering with him get that signal from his instrument or his voice onto that tape and get it back from that tape back into that console, get it where it needs to go, and he's happy. So that gave his engineers great freedom around the periphery of his own artistry. There was only so much we could do. Another thing that I learned from working with him is his extraordinary skills at arrangement. So we worked in 24 track analog and today's Pro Tools sessions will have you know 300 tracks, but there it was 24 tracks. Mm -hmm. When you've only got 24 tracks, just like a painting that's on a tiny little canvas, each individual gesture has to say a lot. So every sound needs to be perfect because there are so few elements and for them to all fit together perfectly, you have to really know what you're doing arrangementally with harmonies and tones and everything. And he was like a watchmaker at fitting individual parts together to form a whole. He said something to me in the studio once that always stuck with me. He said, and it's not true for other people, but it was true him. He said, in theory, every instrument in the, on the record should be capable of being the loudest thing in the mix. And for him, that was true. He didn't do the normal pyramid, you know, where you've got your rhythm section down here, and then you've got your, your lead vocal, and you've got your counter melody and your main melody and so on. He didn't, he didn't think of it that way. He saw it more like a kaleidoscope where you could, in theory, change your perspective and get a reward from listening to any element in his records. It was an incredible efficiency of arrangement that um, I don't think anybody else had. When I left him and I started engineering and mixing for others, especially when I was mixing, I realized I couldn't use the Prince mix techniques on other artists because they didn't arrange the same way they had they had a built-in hierarchy in their arrangements he didn't which was okay. odd do you have any I memories of, yeah mm. sorry sorry uh do you have any memories of him having an idea and not getting to tape enough and then it's gone with writing a song he wouldn't come out and tell you what was going on in his head 
But if something wasn't going fast enough, you would hear the two dreaded words, skip it. Okay. Oh, we needed that. When I say we, I'm talking about myself. And when we worked at Sunset Sound in Los Angeles, Peggy McCreary was there, or whoever else might happen to be there. He'd ask for something and you knew clock is gonna start ticking right now. And you had to go as fast as possible. And if it was taking too long, and by that, I mean three, four minutes, he'd say, skip it. And you'd have to drop it. And sometimes you say, but I got the patch cord in my hand. I just need to put the patch cord just right here in this jack, skip it. Yeah. And what that meant was his brain had already moved on to something else. He had a new idea, it's unnecessary. Wow. When it came to abandoning musical ideas, um, yeah, of course, that, that naturally happened. So um, for all artists, you, uh, you, you've, got a, you've got a concept in your head and you do your basic tracks, you do your rhythm section, you do your main melody, you do your, your counter melodies or your harmony or whatever, you, you come up with lyrics and you put that on there. But records turn a corner after you've done all that. The record, if it's gonna be successful commercially, it needs to turn that corner and become, <clears throat> pardon me, something else. And that's uh, kind of my favorite stage of record making. That's when you're doing your embellishments and you're muting certain things and you're changing other things and you're seeing, okay, how do we take this song and make it a record, a viable record? And of course, with Prince many, many times, it just never <clears throat> bloomed during that stage. And he recognized this isn't good enough to appear on my albums. This is a recording, not a record. And that's when something would go into the vault. That's why he had so much in his vault because so many things, they just, they just didn't reach that bar. They never turned that corner. Every now and then he would pull something out of the vault and have another go at it. And a, a perfect example is I could never take the place of your man on the Sign of the Times album. Um, he had me pull that one out of the out of the vault, and we put that up and changed the changed a lot about it. We kept, I think, the basic bass and drums, but everything else, including that uh, incredible guitar solo, all that changed. Um, he, so he just had another go at it. Yeah, that's really interesting because I was I was really surprised when we got that 1979 demo of "I Can Never Take the Place of Your Man." Is that the tape that he asked you to pull, that original 79? I remember it was an old tape. I don't remember if it was from 79 or maybe a little bit later. I don't remember. So there were songs that, that he reworked many, many times. Strange Relationship. Mm -hmm. We did yeah. over and over and over again in rehearsal and in the studio. Boy, there were a lot of iterations of, of that. And there was a song called Wonderful Ass. <laughs> yep. A lot of different iterations of that before he was finally yeah. satisfied with it. But then there were other pieces like the ballad of Dorothy Parker that just went, boom, you know, that just came out like mm. a sneeze out of his head right onto tape. Yeah. So have you heard much of the, the posthumous releases, these, these vault tracks that have been released by the estate? And I missed the first part of your question. What about them? Sorry, the, the vault tracks that have been getting released by the estate. Have you have you heard many of these? The Sign of the Times expanded yes. release? And... Yes. Uh, when uh, After he passed away, about a year after he passed away, the estate began contacting me and the man who was overseeing these posthumous releases uh, was kind enough to ask me what I thought. He was kind mm. enough to ask everyone in Prince's circle at that time, what they thought, because this fellow, his name is Michael Howe, is so good and conscientious. And I mentioned 
particular tracks that I absolutely loved. My first pick for a posthumous release was not something I did, but it was a song that he did in 82 before I joined him, and that was Moonbeam Levels. Uh, Moonbeam Levels was just always one of my favorite favorites. And there were times when we'd be sequencing an album, and this was true on the Purple Rain album, and it was true on Around the World in a Day. I don't think on the Parade album, but there'd be times when he'd say, pull up the mix of Moonbeam Levels, and we're going to cut it into this this record. It's going to appear on the album. Then he'd change his mind and take it off. I always loved yeah. that. Yeah, it's a great song. Uh, one of my favorites also. And in terms of, so I've got two questions on the back of that. When he says, pull up the tapes, I mean, is that literally get the two inch tapes, put them up on the machine, have a sit down, play it back? Is, exactly. is he going, is that just to remind him of, of you know, the song? Or what was his, his reasoning for wanting to, to need to rehear it? I can take you a little deeper into it, into his reasoning there. Um, Prince was, uh, as everyone knows, who knows about him, taciturn. He didn't like to do interviews. He didn't like to talk much. He liked to work in silence. If he's going to communicate with people, he's going to do it through music. And if he's got any messages for his fans, it's going to be through lyrics. It's not going to be through interviews. I believe that he primarily chose songs to appear on his released albums based on their lyrical content. There was so much great stuff that we did in the studio. It was great musically, but had a lyrical message that wasn't particularly original to him or all that interesting, or it was something that he had said better elsewhere. If it didn't have strong lyrics for him personally, it stayed in the vault. So to answer your question, Sometimes when we'd be sequencing an album, he'd need a, a new scene. So he thought of albums very much like we think of movies. In a movie or a long TV show, you've got your, your crucial scenes and then you've got your filler scenes that tie those together and, and continue the narrative. So he knew which songs were gonna be the key songs on an album. There's gonna be four five of them. Those are the key songs on the album. But then the other songs would be chosen to complement that kernel or seed. So in the case of I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man and Slow Love is another one on uh, Sign of the Times, he knew what he needed. He needed a ballad. He needed something with a long guitar solo. And if he didn't feel like writing one, he'd, he'd say, um, go to the vault and, and bring up this song or bring up that song. He knew he had something that he had done in the past that he could tweak and it could serve as a segue song on the album as a whole. Prince had such a high regard for albums. And he said once, we don't make singles, we make albums. I inherited yeah. that value system from him. He wanted people to put on the record and play it top to bottom from the first song on side A to the last song on side B. So when he was pulling things out of the vault, he was thinking of the whole album experience, not the song as an individual standalone entity. Yeah. And in terms of sound quality, the, these posthumous releases have been nothing short of mind-blowing how good the, the quality is for what must be, you know, 40-year-old tape in some instances. Uh, do you know much of, about, well, I suppose first, is that the sound that you remember from being in the studio, that, that fidelity quality? 
And also, do you know much about the process that they're using to sort of resurrect these old tapes? Um, I know a little bit. So uh, they were stored at Iron Mountain, this mm. preservation. And tapes that are that old, provided that they've been in a temperature-controlled environment, can be restored enough that you get you get one pass and in that one pass you're going to transfer them from analog to digital so the coating the oxide coating and, and the binding material that's on that tape can be heated up in an oven around 100 110 degrees going to heat it up and it will loosen up the glue the adhesive just enough that it allows that loose oxide that's in danger of shedding to stick to the tape so you get one shot at this basically, but if it's done by professionals, you bake the tapes and then yeah. you can thread them up. You do all your signal routing. You make sure you're good to go. You hit record on your digital device. You hit play on that tape and you can transfer everything to a, a digital device. I know that Michael Howe, whom I mentioned earlier was involved in coordinating all that. I know that he recruited the great engineer, Nico Bolas. Yes. So, uh, to work with him at Sunset Sound in Los Angeles, in the room where we always worked at Sunset, trying to preserve that sound. Nico's got such a great ear, and he stayed very faithful, very true to Prince's original vision. The stuff I heard sounded like they, they definitely embraced the spirit of Prince's ear, which was the unique ear. Yeah. Yeah, um, I suppose the, the, the angle uh, that, that we've all come at is this sort of CDH, where because it was early technology, maybe the transfers over to CD weren't the best quality or the best uh, equalization. And it, it kind of blew me away to hear if someone takes all of that knowledge that they've, they've garnered over 30 years to actually take it to CD now, it comes out so much better. Is that the sound that you remember of these songs? You know, like Dorothy Parker or, you know, I could never take the place of your man. Are they that rich when you were in the studio at the time? Or is this current technology magic? No, they were rich as hell. <laughs> For the most part, um, because most of those uh, pieces from the era when I was with him were recorded on a Domitio console. Um, Frank Domitio, Cuban-American, renowned console designer, had customized a console at Sunset Sound in Los Angeles. Prince loved the sound of that console so much that he commissioned Frank Domitio to build a console for him. And so we also, at Paisley Park, it's still there today, and at Prince's home before Paisley was built, we had a Domitio console. Yeah. Frank Domitio showed me on an oscilloscope, I wouldn't have believed it if he hadn't showed it to me, took an oscillator starting at, I don't know, one or two hertz or something, fed it into a channel strip on that console, and started increasing the frequency of the oscillator. That console was flat to 70K. It didn't start rolling off until 70K. It was made of all discrete components. So that console could swing signal in a way that most contemporary consoles couldn't even hope to match. And for the listening audience, if you were to sweep an an oscillator through a lesser console, one costing twice as much money, but still a lesser console, you're going to see in the best of them, you'll see roll off at half that frequency, 35K. So for the most part, the recordings we did with Prince, um, 
were of a high enough caliber that if that signal can be restored, you're going to hear it. There were exceptions, of course, because we did a lot of recordings. A, a lot of uh, the Around the World in the Day album uh, was done at rehearsal. And at rehearsal, mm -hmm. in many cases, we had a Soundcraft console for a, a temporary time there. And, and you know, the signals coming off the rehearsal stage through the dynamic stage mics going into a splitter snake with transformers feeding two different consoles a monitor mix console and my recording console and i can hear in those pieces you know i can hear the audio quality is not as good so it depends where it was recorded yeah and i guess it's, some of those no, no, sorry, carry on. no you carry on please well, i was just going to say everything you say gives me about 10 questions and i don't really know where, where to go with the next one <laughs> <laughs> because in my mind i'm picturing the, the flying cloud drive warehouse that you, you just mentioned that you mentioned that he recorded all of the rehearsals and it would at some point I, I kind of assume that we're going to get to see them in some form or other because it, you know they were found at paisley but the question that i have is the studio sessions did he ever set a recorder up there so we'd be able to see him you know with yourself at the control board and laying down the tracks yeah, he was so insanely private. When he had a new employee, we had to sign an NDA um, that mm. said, a non-disclosure agreement that said, we would not have a camera anywhere in his vicinity. I've had people ask me, I'm sure, and they ask his colleagues too, um, if I've got any pictures of myself in the studio with him. No, no, he wouldn't <laughs> let a camera anywhere near him during those private times, which is ironic because everything else in his musical life from rehearsals to his live shows, he videotaped obsessively, but not in yeah. the studio. He wanted that, he wanted that to be private. Uh, so could you, you and, and, yeah. sorry, one last one and then. Yeah, sorry. yeah, no, no, no. Could go, you, go could you indulge us, put us in the room in, you know, 85, you, you're at Galpin uh, and he's, no, I, he's oh. there with his guitar about to lay down a track. Could you just, run us through how that felt. Yeah. So the Galpin Road home was in Chanhassen, just down the street from Paisley Park Studios. And it's in a, a, a kind of a fancy area, but rather rural. The family that lived there yeah. before Prince bought the house was a doctor and they had a lot of kids. So you drive in a long gravel driveway, go in the front door. When you went in the front door, you were in the entry way and you could take the stairs to the right and go upstairs to the master bedroom or the stairs downstairs to your left which would go down to the uh, studio area so i would go downstairs and make a u-turn and i would be in his home studio the home studio was think of it as a large finished basement although with a fairly high ceiling and because the house was a split level home once you were down in that basement there was a sliding glass door that exited out into his backyard and something like 200 acres of woods mm -hmm. beyond. It was very, very private. Um, along the back wall were stained glass windows. And I believe that Susanna Melvoin had a hand in designing some of those stained glass windows. So sometimes uh, when the Western sun would come in through those stained glass windows, the uh, control room was absolutely beautiful. It was a royal purple shag carpeting, wall-to-wall -wall carpeting a deep rich purple and then the walls were very pale color wood um lighter than pine they might have been ash or something like that it was a pale color wood now in this room we had oh and i think of it today how great 
So in this room, we had that Dimidio console built into the soffits up in front of the console were space for the Westlake Audio BBSM5 big monitors. When I say big, I mean big. So the Westlake monitors that he and Michael Jackson preferred, each monitor had two 18-inch woofers in it. It's, it's crossed over four different times. So there are five bands of, of frequencies from the lowest lows to the highest highs. Man, those Westlakes, gosh, they sounded great. They were especially good for dance music. So you got your Westlakes, massive Westlakes in, in the wall in front of you and beneath them is the, the racks for, for the crown amplifiers used to drive them. And then of course there was a TV monitor there, but when you're working with analog, why do you need a TV? You're not seeing anything. But I remember watching the Challenger explosion with Frank Demidio right there in that room on that TV. So if you're behind the console over on your left is a soffit with the multi-track tape machine and then another soffit with your, your stereo tape machines. Now on your right, long sliding glass door and on the other side is a pretty small ISO booth compared to most rooms in, where, in which you'd record drums. This is fairly small. It's all wood, nicely designed and his Yamaha drum kit was set up there. There wasn't room for both the drums and his piano his Yamaha piano was directly above the studio, um, right in a zone where his kitchen met the dining area, which met the living room area. So it was essentially not a separate room, but it was the dining area. And that's where his piano was. His piano was a pale purple, custom painted, of course, uh, Yamaha piano, baby grand. That was usually kept mic'd and there were humidifiers around it so that you know, the Minnesota weather changes drastically. So it was it was in a well to, well controlled environment. Anyway, Mike's mic cables would have to be run um, patched through. I don't remember. I don't think we ran them through uh, down the staircase. I, I'm pretty sure that there were tie lines in the walls, but I don't remember that exactly. Anyway, sometimes I'd be down in the control room while he'd be upstairs on the piano, and I'd be recording him that way. And other times, like I mentioned. Um, we'd be working downstairs together, just the two of us in that room. Now set up around him behind the console seating position was all of his stuff. His, the one bass that he used most of the time, it was, it was an obscure brand. He got it in San Francisco. I want to say it was Alonzo, Alfonso, okay, something like okay. that, the orange mm -hmm. bass. That's the one he used primarily for recording. And then he had uh, all of his guitars set up, all of his keyboards, everything just kind of arranged in a semicircle behind him uh, along with the outboard gear. So everything we needed was just right within arm's reach. That was his favorite way to work. Just get me everything set up and ready to roll. And as he even wrote to me in a note once, I, I kept that note. It said, uh, the faster you work, the faster I can work. And then he wrote, Save my blood pressure, please. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Can I, I? So I've got a two-faceted question. Uh, one about just him as a person, and uh, uh, the other about music. But being Canadian, I have to ask him. Being from Minnesota, did he like the winter, and did he like hockey? Um, as far as sports, the only thing he ever expressed an interest in was basketball. Um. So I don't know what he felt about football or hockey or baseball or anything like that. As far as the winters went, no, he didn't, he didn't like, 
the cold weather, but he loved Minnesota. He okay. loved the Minnesota people. He, he, he loved being there. I remember once we were at the Galpin Roadhouse and um, we were working on something. I was editing something or whatever. So I was busy and he didn't, he didn't have anything he needed to do. And he said, I'm gonna go to the grocery store. Do you want anything? And he said, no, no, I'm good. And he drove his car up the street to the big grocery store. He came back and he had some funny story about something that somebody said to him at the grocery store, but he loved being in Minnesota because he was a local and he could go to the store and come back and people might say something complimentary to him, but they'd leave him alone. That didn't happen in New York or LA where he was under pressure to be a star. At home, he could just be Prince and he appreciated that greatly. And from a music, I think one of the things from a, a musical sense, for me as a musician, I know how hard I've had to work over the years to be you know, somewhat competent on the guitar. Uh, but the fact that he was so talented with so many different instruments, like I'm sitting here as a musician going like, how did he keep his chops up on everything? Like how much did he practice every day? Like, was, did you see any of that or was it just something where? Oh yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, I was watching a documentary on Jimi Hendrix once and there was an, an old girlfriend of his who was on the camera and she said, that guy was so obsessed with guitar. He'd get up in the morning and he'd put on his guitar and be playing guitar when he walked from the bed to the bathroom, talking about Hendrix. And I thought, wow, Prince was exactly the same. So if Prince was awake, he wanted to have a musical instrument in his hands. In the morning, he had to make phone calls and meet with people just to get the business of his life up and running. He'd get all that out of the way as fast as possible. And the whole rest of the day and all of the night, he wanted to have an instrument in his hands. We would either be at a recording studio or we'd be rehearsing during the day and then recording at night. Or if we were on tour, the most amazing thing of, of all on tour, he would do, unlike most rock stars, no 30 minute sound check for Prince. He wanted mm -hmm. to take the stage as soon as audio was routed. And you know, the riggers still have to do their lights and they, they, there's still people dressing the stage. Uh, and hanging PA, he didn't care. As long as it, he had monitors set up, he wanted to hit that stage with his band to be rehearsing. And if the band didn't get there on time, he'd take the stage by himself and he'd stand at the drum machines and program a beat or he'd play drums or he'd play organ or he'd play piano or he'd play guitar. He was obsessed. He had to have his hands on an instrument. So he would do sound check for four hours, five hours if he could. You have to leave the stage to give the opening act 30 minutes to do their sound check. Opening act comes, Prince takes the stage when it's time for his show, plays a three hour set, leaves the stage at 11.30 at night or so, and then one of two things would happen. He would either go off and play an after party that had been arranged in advance at a small club somewhere where he and the band would take the stage at one o'clock in the morning and they'd play till they shut us down at five or 6 a.m. or uh, he and I would go to a recording studio and we'd work on a Sheila E album or an album by the time or any of his work. So after playing a four hour sound check and a three hour show, the night was was young for Prince and it was time yeah. to get to work. <laughs> Pretty mind blowing. Do you, do you think I, back to those sound checks? Do you think 
Do you ever think, oh, back then, if we had digital boards, we could kind of save the setting he liked and just tweak it a little bit for venue to venue? Do you think that would have saved time on the sound check at all, having digital boards back then? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he would have appreciated the hell out of that. I imagine he did later in his life. But once you learned Prince's ear, you could dial in his sound really fast. Okay. In his ear. It, it was just bam, 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 bam. It's like a chef. I suppose, adjusting the seasonings for your client. You know how much bitterness and saltiness and sweetness that they like in their food. And it's just instant. You just do it as second nature. It becomes so second nature that it actually was difficult for me to learn my own sound when I started working with other clients after Prince. But mm. for me, it, it, was, it was quite second nature, dialing in his guitar tone and his drum tone. I, I knew what he liked. Just thinking of all these hours that you, you spent, I get the, the feeling that it was almost like a, a sport to you to see whether you could outlast him. Would I be right in thinking that? Yeah, I was so proud. Uh, yeah. Proud to be working for him and so happy to have that gig. And I mean, frankly, as well, um, you didn't see women engineers in those days. And I started with him as an even more rare specimen, a woman audio technician. Didn't even hear of that, much less see women repairing consoles and tape machines, young women, I might add. So I was damned if I was going to lose that gig because I couldn't cut it. So as hard as he worked, I worked. And it was thrilling. It was, it was painful, yeah. <laughs> physically so demanding. But it becomes it becomes almost kind of like a sport. Like, yeah. how much can I punish my body for this? Well, I'll show you how badly I want this. I'll I'll do this until I drop. As I said earlier, many twenty four hour sessions that was quite common. Forty eight hour sessions were not uncommon, and the longest one I ever had was ninety six hours, four days. So, and, sorry yeah. about that, Susan. Sorry. No, go ahead. We have a wonderful Patreon community, and from time to time, if we throw in a few of the Patreon questions for you, uh, that leads me to this Patreon question. We have a wonderful uh, member, Wanda Manning. Uh, she lives in upstate New York, by the way, too. She lives in Utica. Uh, she had a question, and I'm bringing it up because you're talking about the demands of, of when you're working for Prince. Her question is, was it hard to balance your work life and your personal life when you were working for him? It's easy to balance uh, just one object. You know, balance is a term that's that's used to, to describe a relationship between two objects. When your work is your life, there's nothing to balance. Uh, in the time when I was with him, um, there was no personal life. That that's That's the devil's bargain that you made when you went to work for him. He would pay you handsomely, a good salary. He'd have a very exciting life, but he owned you in a sense yeah. that you belong to him 24 seven and 365 days a year. So Christmases and birthdays and dating and visiting your family and all that, you can forget about that. Um, and I, I, I willingly signed that bargain. I, 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 it's, it's what I wanted until I couldn't take it anymore. And that happened after I was going into year five with him and I was so, um, just so utterly drained that that pace was not sustainable. You can only sustain it for so long. And I had kind of reached the end. And it just so happened that I, I met someone. I met a guy. I was doing post-production out in Los Angeles on the Sign of the Times concert film. 
I met someone, I went on a date one night and that particular night Prince couldn't reach me. And uh, he flew from <laughs> Minneapolis, yeah, he flew from Minneapolis to uh, Los Angeles and confronted me on that. And essentially our conversation toe to toe was, you weren't available last night. I can't have that. And my response was, and I can no longer always be available. And we had, we'd kind of reached an, uh, the end of the road for us. Okay. Was that the final day or did you then? You know, no, but the it... end came shortly after that. We both sort of agreed that, yeah, I need to, I need to move on and he needed he, he paisley park studios had just opened this was in late 87 so paisley park studios had just opened and now he could have rather than one personal engineer he could have a staff of engineers and he could keep two three rooms working at the same time so his methodology had an opportunity for drastic change and he took advantage of that yeah and in terms of what you did straight after, did you need a period of time to just sort of decompress from what was effectively a tour of duty? I didn't know what to expect. So I had joined Prince as an audio technician. I had been working with Crosby, Stills and Nash in Los Angeles as their studio maintenance tech before Prince. And after Prince, I thought, who's gonna hire me as an engineer? I wondered if maybe they'd, someone would hire me as an assistant engineer? Should I work for a studio? I, I honestly didn't know what to expect. And the first phone call I got was from the Jacksons, um, the Jackson family, and um, they were doing an album uh, out in Los Angeles and they invited me to come out and work, work with them on that album. So I did. And then from that point, my career as an independent record maker slowly, slowly built. Yeah. It's a, a strange one for any Prince fan when you hear Michael Jackson's name come straight after in a, in a question about Prince. I've learned to live with it now, but I find it's more a coincidence of timing than anything, rather than a direct comparison of, of the two types of acts that they were, two types of performers. Can you speak to how you'd see Michael Jackson versus Prince and you know, yeah. maybe from a, a musical point of view and, and instrumentation? I think that's very true. When I went to Los Angeles, the uh, the guys that I worked with were mostly Jackie and Jermaine. They were doing an album called 2300 Jackson Street. And Michael was not part of that album. He was on tour. He was touring the Bad album at that time. But this is right before he built Neverland or as Neverland was being built. So at uh, the family compound, which was on Havenhurst Street in Encino, California, at the family compound, Michael's animals were there. And right outside the room where I stayed, there was the little deer. They had deer and they had uh, a llama and all sorts of exotic animals. There was also on that compound, there was a recording studio. And we spent a lot of time in that room and, and talked a lot. And um, Jackie and Jermaine were curious about Prince and asked me a lot of questions about how he got to that point on the top of the pop charts in the 80s, the mid 80s, because Michael also got to that exact same point. But I was, we realized two very different paths. So Michael, youngest brother in this family that's being groomed by their dad and by Barry Gordy and Diana Ross, groomed by a system to become pop stars. 
from a young age, they're teaching him and training him, M Michael I'm talking about, and raising him to be a pop star. Prince reached the exact same point essentially on his own. So it's like comparing the racehorses, Man of War and Seabiscuit. Prince was Seabiscuit. <laughs> he just came out of left field. Yeah. We still there? Oh yeah, I, I'm here. Yeah, yeah. You, you froze for a moment, but you're back. It's it's fine. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, uh, Susan, as a guitar player, you know, I, I I'm very vexed with Prince's guitar playing now. Uh, back in the day in the '80s, there weren't a lot of different companies that made different pedals and effects. Usually, it was Boss, who are owned by Roland, uh, MXR. Uh, did he ever like? I loved the clean tone on the Purple Purple Rain song, like. Can we talk about what effects he used? I'm assuming it was a boss chorus of some type, maybe, or? He loved those boss pedals and he wouldn't use any other brand. So whenever we were recording and we had to have several of these because he, he, he almost didn't work without it. He had the, the array of foot pedals um, and he'd mix them up because it would only fit, I think, like six pedals in the in the gray plastic case. So he he loved the the orange distortion pedal and the heavy metal pedal, and he loved the flanger. He loved the chorus. He loved the delay. He loved those pedals. So we'd mix them up depending on which song he was playing and what effect he wanted. He usually took his his guitar. Um, the guitar he played was a Honer. It was that Telecaster copy. Mm -hmm. it, was, it was great for recording in the studio. The cloud guitar, the white one that he made famous in the Purple Rain movie, was not a good recording instrument. So in the studio, we used that uh, that honer most of the time. For a clean sound, um, I preferred, I always used the Countryman direct box. The Countryman was a, was a great fit for that honer. At that time in the 80s, Prince used 11 gauge strings, the really heavy strings. And he he had such a, a fondness for sustained notes, as you know, he was a fan of Carlos Santana and he imitated his style very much. So he would play those heavy 11 gauge strings and he'd use this product that you don't see much anymore, finger ease, you know about finger ease? Yeah. Little spray can, you know, you spray, spray yeah. yeah, you spray it on the strings. He always had to have that finger ease. Anyway, his guitar would come out and would, would run through his effects pedals and then out of the effects pedals and into the direct box and into an API on the Demidio console, mic preamp or customized mic preamp. Um, that was his clean tone. I don't remember if we ever just ditched those boss pedals entirely and came straight out of the direct box and into the preamp, probably, but he liked having those effects pedals there. He liked having them uh, not be preset, but he liked them to be manually adjustable. He, on stage, he wanted to be able to kick on whichever effect he wanted at any given mm -hmm. time. And, and, and he, he wanted that to be preset for him in advance. He liked to do it on the fly. Um, when it came to his distorted sound, it was the same path, only instead of going to a direct box, it would go to his Mesa Boogie amp with a bag end cabinet. He loved that Mesa Boogie tone. And then mm -hmm. to like that cabinet, uh, myself, I liked the Sennheiser 421. Uh, it's always nice. I, I still like it to this day um, mm -hmm. on guitar. Love that. Love that mic. Sometimes it would be a 57, but I like the 421 a little bit better if we had if we had it available. 
-hmm. And again, with those petals in front of him, on the floor in front of him, he could stomp on whichever one he needed to create the effect that he wanted. Did he, uh, how was he, how did he feel about endorsements from different companies? Or was he more, I don't do that, I'll just go out and buy what I need? Or how, what was his mentality towards like endorsements of working with companies on, with products? I don't think he would have, he would have been interested in anything like that. He, um, he was so insanely private and he really didn't like those business conversations. I don't think he liked much conversation at all. So uh, an endorsement would mean having a relationship with people. Mm -hmm. uh, and if he could avoid it, he'd avoid it. Yeah. Because if he, you know, if he had a, a relationship like that with a company, it, it means you can only use our product and only be seen using, I, I just don't see, I don't see him taking people uh, telling him what to do, so to speak. Directly or indirectly. I can tell you a story and I regret that the story won't be that great because I don't remember the name of the brand. But one of Prince's guitar techs had arranged when we were in Los Angeles for um, a fellow representing, <clears throat> sorry, sorry, some um, outboard gear brand, uh, some guitar effects set up to come to the studio and demonstrate something for Prince. And Prince kind of reluctantly said okay to the guitar tech. So this representative came down with a tall rack, anvil case on wheels, just loaded up with gear, brought it out into the live room at Sunset Sound, spent a long time setting it up and signal testing it, make sure it was already. <laughs> and then uh, Prince plugged his guitar into it, listened to the first tone, and uh, Prince asked the guy one question, how do you change the sounds? And the guy said, oh, well, there's all these different presets that you program. And as soon as the word presets was out of that guy's mouth, Prince took his guitar, handed it to his guitar tech, turned on his heel, went back into the control room. We were done. We were done. Yeah. <laughs> take the gig, take the, the rig, I should say, roll it out. We're done. I've always been a big proponent of, you know, having done all these grunt work in the in the clubs all around, like, you know, simpler is better for especially for performing live but uh you can really get into those effects you almost need a phd just to know how to you know what goes in front of what and how to wire this and how to you know i like it simple a few pedals and, and it looked like that's what how prince liked it too from his, yeah. his pedal board setup throughout his career a lot of musicians and recording engineers are extremely brand loyal because that enhances our creativity uh, we know what instruments we like we know what effects we like and we need to Get that out of the way, get that decision-making out of the way so that we can then focus on being creative. We know Absolutely. what we like. When a new piece of software, uh, hardware would come along, like a, a new Lindrum or something like that, when it came into the studio, was it a collaborative thing that you'd learn how to use it together or would he spend a session in the studio that day just getting to grips with it? No, with him, he was open to the idea of new stuff. And I think I was just thinking the other day of how I wish I had been a little bit more adventurous with uh, introducing him to new sounds. He was open to the idea on one condition that you go really, really fast. So um, for example, in the recording studio, when we got the Publison, the Publison infernal machine, that thing was an infernal machine. It was ridiculously expensive, it had a readout it would speak to you in four or five different languages. And the thing was great. It had a, it was a sampler and it had a long sample window and a lot of nice reverbs and effects. But to sit there and poke at buttons on that, there's no way he's gonna do that. The way to introduce it to him is to just plug it in 
and add a little bit of it on something. And if he likes the sound of it, he'll ask for it again. Um, and it was kind of the same thing with musical instruments. The exception to that was the Fairlight. The Fairlight was such a complex sound processing machine that we not only, when we bought the Fairlight, uh, well, it was such a complex machine, we had to hire someone who could kind of operate it for Prince or show him how to change sound. And that someone was Todd Harriman, who was the salesman who sold it mm. to us. Todd came up from Chicago, went to work for Prince, and uh, Prince just loved him. The, the right fit, the personality was perfect. And Todd was so gracious and so good at showing Prince how to get the sounds that he wanted. Um, Prince was okay with that. If you were the right person, he'd listen to you. But anybody who was overbearing, he didn't have time for. That's fascinating that you've just mentioned Todd, because I'm a big fan of the Dwayne Tudal uh, books that he's been chronicling, you know, day after day. And to see Todd's name pop up, I always wondered if uh, the assistant engineer role that he was sort of credited with on the paperwork. Can you speak to, obviously you spent so much time with him alone at Galpin and, you know, Kiowa Trail in the early days. What was the, the dynamic at Sunset? How would you split duties with Peggy or Coke or David Coleman, uh, David Leonard? How would you go about those days? Peggy was a staff engineer at Sunset Sound and I was Prince's engineer. And um, it wasn't clear when we first met how we were going to work together and how we would split those duties. It ended up happening very, very pleasantly. And um, I was really grateful for her. And I think she was grateful for me too. He worked us so hard that to have someone else there was great. We didn't get competitive with each other because there was so much work to do. There actually was enough room for both of us. He'd ask for some something and whichever one of us was closest or was free, we just do it. Um, Peggy, as an employee of Sunset Sound was representing the studio and that studio was part of a system. So she knew more than I did about protocol in recording sessions. Um, I, on the other hand, knew more about Prince's um, well, his preferred ways of working and how those preferred ways of working were changing because I was with him day in and day out. So in between albums, Peggy wouldn't see him, but I saw him all the time. So I could, we could each bring something new to the table. It just, it seemed to happen all very nicely and naturally. David Leonard wasn't around as much. Um, mm -hmm. Prince liked him. He was Peggy's boyfriend at the time at Sunset Sound and eventually became her husband. And initially, um, David was uh, better at razor blade editing than Peggy was. So especially late at night, it'd be three o'clock in the morning and Prince would be asking for a delicate tape edit. This is before I went to work for him. He should go and get David because David was a little better at it. Uh, when I first joined Prince, he wasn't aware that I was quite good at editing myself. So it took a little while, it took a little minute before he realized any edit you ask for just give me the blade and it's going to get done. And once once we got up to speed with that, and David was certainly busy with other clients, we didn't see him as much. Mm -hmm. it's it a story. David, David is credited as David the Blade Leonard, I think, on the, yes. on the Purple Rain. There's a, a story from around 1999 where uh, Chuck D, the rapper, was working with Prince. And Prince asked him to go and watch Oprah, which I think is code for leave the room, please. And uh, he looked through the window, Chuck D did, and Prince was like this with tape. 
and I think that was uh, he he still had those those talents, you know, 10, 15 years later to be able to edit the tape. He, uh, I mean, he might have been moving pieces around, but he, um, I don't think he took a razor blade to the tape. And here's why. Okay. One time we were at Sunset Sound and he asked me for something that was very, very specific. And uh, he was standing next to me and I marked the tape and I was just getting ready to cut it. And he said, he was asking me questions about how do you know where to mark and why? And why did you, why'd you mark a head of where it was that the sound is? And uh, he was asking questions and I thought he might like to do it. So I held up the blade and I, I held it to him and I said, you want to do it? I'll show you how to do it. Like this. And then he said, player. And he went like this with his hands, meaning piano player. Don't, I'm not going to risk cutting my fingers. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to cut your fingers editing tape. I just remember him like the piano player. So I, I I doubt very much that uh, Prince was actually razor blade editing around 1999. Okay, that's good to know. See, this is why why we we love these interviews. Uh, one question mm. that I've got around uh, the the Dwayne Trudeau sort of seeing everything laid out. I'm I'm from a financial background, so I kind of turn everything to a spreadsheet. And I noticed that the days where you were compiling albums, you would often have uh, David Z, David Rifkin, come out to Sunset. Was that a conscious thing around al al album compilations that he had a specific ear or, or anything to that? Or is it just coincidence? I want to be clear about the chronology presented in Dwayne Tudal's books. Dwayne is a friend and a colleague and a meticulous researcher, but the dates that formed the chronology of events at Sunset Sound were taken in large part from invoices and yeah. from tape box labels. So that doesn't tell you what happened with any great precision on any given day. So it might say an invoice might be sent to Warner Brothers saying that we worked on this song, this song, this song, this song, and that we'll all, they'll all share the same date. But that doesn't mean that those songs were worked on on the same day, especially because with Prince, one day would just bleed into the next. Sure. You would do a song, be 24 hours long, be six o'clock in the morning, and Prince would come in and say the dreaded words, fresh tape. You'd put up fresh tape, and that same session would go into another song, or he'd go home at night. You'd work on something for just a few hours. So to answer your question about David Z, there was a period of time right around the parade album when we were at Sunset Sound in Studio 3, and David was working simultaneously in Studio 2 on an album by Maserati. Maserati yep. was a protege band discovered by Mark Brown, Prince's bassist, and signed to Prince's Paisley Park label. So they were working simultaneously. So David might pop in, but I can tell you that sequencing albums was Prince's, that was his wheelhouse. He didn't need another person's opinion on how the sequence in an album should go. He, he didn't need that. The way we would do it, it was so exciting when we would sequence an album, is we'd finally, we'd gather all the master tapes together. This is on half-inch tape. We'd have them all there in the room. He'd put up the first song. He always knew it was going to be side one, first song. He'd put that up. And then 
as that song is playing and as it's fading out, I'd have the China marker next to the next to the head, the playback head, and I'd be looking at him and he might be tapping time like this. And when he nodded, just like with punching in, that's where I'd make the mark. That's where he wanted the next song to start. So he'd nod, I'd mark, we'd fine tune it. We'd take the next song and take the next song and cut that one in. And then the same process with the second song, faded out, faded out, faded out, faded out, mark, cut. Then after you have a side put together and for vinyl, a side might be 17 minutes long, 18 maximum. You couldn't get away with longer than 18 minutes. So 16, 17 minutes long. After you had side one, you'd listen to that side and you'd fine tune the timing in between songs. Yeah, maybe move this one up, put a little bit more time there. Then he would often decide to do crossfades as one song is fading out, another song is fading in. Just so much fun. It's a little bit of a complicated setup, but so much fun. Anyway, I offer all this to say, this was the director of a movie in the editing room, cutting those scenes together. Now his vision is coming to life. So um, with all due respect to David Z, I don't wanna credit David or, or anyone else with making those creative decisions at that time. That was all Prince. That's totally understood. Thank you. Uh, it's, it is interesting to see it written down, but obviously it's, it's two dimensional. Um, however, it's also the, the four years of your life that's been chronicled in those books. How does that feel to see everything sort of written down in, in that way? Um, I think mostly I feel um, so grateful that there are people who are interested in, in Prince and his life. He deserves to be remembered. He was an extraordinary musical mind. Mm -hmm. Extraordinary. And, and we should talk about extraordinary musical minds. As a Prince fan myself, if I had never met him and never worked for him, I'd be eating those books up because I'd want to know, how did he do it? How did he do it? What was it like to be in the room with him? I'm grateful that I can share Prince stories. And I'm also grateful to those other engineers who can share stories about my other favorite musical artists. Tell me what it was like be in the room at stacks and you got al jackson jr on drums you got steve cropper on guitar tell me what it was like and tell it slow tell it slow same thing with the being at fame studios with rick hall what was it like to be with rick hall what was it like to be in a room with jerry lee lewis i want to know everything so uh, i'm i'm happy and grateful that i can contribute to those stories and help fans know this is what it was like to sit next to him now, saying what it was like to sit next to him doesn't answer the most intriguing question of all, which is what was it like inside his head? Mm. What was it like in his head? And Todd Harriman actually offered some insight. <clears throat> so it was me, Todd, Prince, and Eric Leeds at the Galpin Road studio for four days. We had just come off the tour. We'd just come back from Japan. And Prince was desperate to get into the recording studio. We did the first Madhouse album, which was a jazz instrumental album. Prince played everything. He played piano and drums and bass and Eric Leeds played guitar. And we zipped, we, we zipped through that record in four days. Excuse me yeah. one second. Did the record in four days. Um, mm -hmm. Really intense, very little sleep. And we finished a piece 
know, Prince played some incredible piano and uh, Prince went, gave us our final instructions and he went upstairs to go to bed and sleep. He went upstairs and got into his pajamas and brushed his teeth. And a little while later he came back down and he looked kind of sheepish. And he said, do you guys mind, uh, mind going again? He said, I really <laughs> want to sleep. I'm exhausted. I was brushing my teeth and this melody came to me. Can we go again? And we said, of course we can go again. You know, if you're up, we're up, put up fresh tape. But at one point he did something that was so phenomenal that Todd just had to say to him, what is it like to know you've just recorded something like this and then just go upstairs and go to sleep? And Todd said, that was a moment where the veil just kind of dropped and Prince looked at him and Prince said, that's the problem, I can't sleep. Mm -hmm. I can't, I, I, it, it wouldn't let him go. He'd put his head down and, and it was really, really hard to sleep or a new song would pop up. And once that new song popped up, he knew it was a signal. It meant fresh tape, we gotta go again. His period of productivity mm -hmm. was practically unparalleled in mm -hmm. the yeah. 80s. Just uh, reaching back to the story that you, you told us about Andre Simone and him as, as a teenager, do you think it was always on that, that sort of creative mind? Or do you think, do you, I suppose the question is, do you think he was fully formed at such a young age mu musically? I can speak to that a little bit from the neuroscience of creativity. So um, what we know about creative thinking is that it involves certain dedicated structures in the brain. And those structures have built-in gates. So when you have to think of a new idea for a song, let's say, or a part, a guitar part or a guitar solo, you need to think of something original. Your efforts will open up those gates and allow little fragments from long-term memory or elsewhere to come floating through the gates till you get an idea. Once you get an idea, you think, okay, now I know how to do it. And you shut the gates. That's the point where we move from art to craft. We move from original thought to actually getting it done, putting the instrument in our hands or getting our hands on the console and actually making it. For people whom neuroscience uh, labels hyper-creative, their gates are faulty. And I've only known two, only known two people who, who in the music business who I think were hyper-creative. Uh, Prince was one and, uh, fellow named Tommy Jordan is another. And Tommy and I are very close. Um, for people who are hyper-creative, those gates don't close and they move from art to craft, but the gate stays open and the new ideas just keep coming and coming and coming and coming and coming. They have what neuroscience calls reduced inhibition. They can't shut the gate. So that was why when Prince would go upstairs and a new song would come, there's nothing to do, nothing to do but put that instrument in your hands and, and just play it and just record it. And uh, Tommy Jordan had a, a similar profile. He was in the band Gagita and we'd be working together. You'd be printing the final mix and Tommy would say, wait, and he'd have an idea for another part and really, really hard to, to impossible in fact, to, to get him to stop being a fountain of ideas. It is, it is rare. Yeah. Um if we go from the, the the mental to the physical, when I watched some of those performances uh, in the eighties, like, you know, maybe I, maybe I'm getting old and I'm going, Oh my God, how do they do that? But did I have to ask, did he himself and some of the musicians, did they have an exercise regimen that they did every day or to, 
stay in shape or to be able to physically do what they were doing on stage? And when I worked with Prince and his band, they were in their 20s, so they were. Yeah. yeah, that's another, yeah. And he loved playing basketball. And so there was usually a hoop set up outside rehearsal and in between taking a break and he'd, he'd, he'd play basketball with, with members of his band or members of the time or the crew, whoever was around. Uh, that's what he would do to stay in shape. And sometimes they'd play, they'd play baseball, softball. I think it might have been. I was never out there. I was always indoors doing stuff. But no, they they were they were in such good shape because they worked so hard at their choreography. When we were at rehearsal, there sometimes would be specific goals, like let's work out an arrangement for strange relationship, or I've just come up with this idea, this new melody. Let's let's come up with a, an arrangement together, which was always wonderful. It took a long time, but it was wonderful to let the individual members of the revolution come up with their own parts. He didn't do that nearly often enough, but when he did, the results were usually pretty magical. So they'd spend a long time, and I think Prince really indulged in that, because normally his ideas came so quickly, and I think he liked the opportunity of being with his band, taking his time. Let Lisa find that harmony that's just going to kill us. Let Matt Fink come up with a good idea for a keyboard solo. Give these guys time. He was working now at the pace of mere mortals, great musicians, but mere mortals. Mm -hmm. Working at that pace, I think he, he, he really enjoyed that. He was always very, very happy at rehearsal. But other times, you know, we wouldn't have any specific goal in mind. And that's when they just, they just stretch, you know, just get okay. on your instruments, just play st stuff and let's just work out as athletes do. Um Time for another Patreon question, I think. Um, Mike Machete, he's one of our great Patreons. Uh, he was wondering if there's any instance or time in the studio with yourself and Prince or with all the musicians that was just, everyone was laughing and having a great time at the humor. Or what was the most like lighthearted, funniest time in the studio that you had? He loved rehearsal. I gotta say a lot of our, our, our most fun times were at rehearsal. Exceptions would be if he was having difficulty with a girlfriend or if he was having trouble in his business relationships, he could come in in a dark mood. But with Prince, if he started, whether it was a studio session or a rehearsal in a dark mood, that mood would dissipate pretty fast if he had an instrument in his hands and could play. He was generally a happy person. Okay. We had a good time, we had a good time at rehearsal. I can share a story that was hysterical. Oh God. Um, so we're at rehearsal and uh, the rehearsal was a large warehouse, corrugated tin roof. It's just a warehouse, a manufacturing warehouse. So it's nothing fancy. Cement floor, just throw down a few rugs. But anyway, there's a, a kind of a dance floor, Marley style dance floor where the risers were set up, where the band was. And there's the side fills and the wedge monitors that he liked out in, out in front. So, um, the monitor mix console was sitting right in front of where the band rehearsed because we were actually rehearsing for a tour. So the monitor mix console was right there and Rob Cubby Colby, the great, was there doing Prince's monitors because he was gonna be, he was gonna be the front of house mixer. So Cub was right there and Prince is just a few feet, six feet maybe away from him, front. And uh, we were rehearsing the cross, the song of the cross. And it starts with that beautiful guitar riff. And the opening line is black day, stormy night. And Prince sings, 
black day, stormy night. His voice cracked. <laughs> and Cub is sitting behind the console. He's trying so hard not to laugh. And he's just oh, trying so hard. <laughs> and he's just practically sweating and trembling. He's trying so hard not to laugh. And Prince sings <laughs> in the line, no love, no hope. And finally, Prince just stopped as he said, laugh, laugh. Just go ahead and laugh. You're <laughs> laugh and everybody laughed so hard it was so funny um he was the as i said he was usually in a good mood at rehearsal and we had good times there another time this is another rehearsal story that was just so typical of prince they take a lunch break he hardly ever eats so he doesn't want a lunch break so he's a little bit disgruntled that people have to eat <laughs> 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 anyway, so they all take their lunch break, but he would stay uh, on the makeshift stage and he would play guitar. He'd play piano. He's not going to take a break. Well, Cub, Cubby again, figured, well, if the boss is staying, I'm staying. So for that reason, Cub would bring with him like a candy bar or snack or something like that so that he could stay at his post. So Cubby had a payday candy bar and he was sitting on his monitor mixed console and we stopped for the, for the break and... Um, everybody took off and cub just had to go to the bathroom he was only gone a few minutes he turned and came back and his candy bar is gone and prince <laughs> is sitting there on his amp playing guitar and eating his candy bar and cub <laughs> looks at him and says you took my payday and prince has got his mouth full of candy bar and he looks at him and says payday's not till friday <laughs> <laughs> It was funny. And that is funny. We, we had good times with him at the warehouse. And, and actually, some of my favorite recording sessions were were at the warehouse. Um, I don't know why. I, maybe just because he was so happy and comfortable there. Maybe because it was just so relaxed. But I have really good memories of recording at the warehouse, including, <clears throat> pardon me, the first song that I, I did with him at the warehouse, which was Let's Go Crazy. Um, mm -hmm. I remember that very well. Those stems are out, aren't they? They're, they're one of the only uh, available sort of recording sessions. I've, I've heard people breaking down those stems. Yeah. Um, I think if Prince is going to be appreciated by a new generation, the best source of material is any video material. Because when you hmm. watch him on video, you get to see that's actually how he played. You know, when you when the youth of today listen to records, you just assume it's been pitch corrected and time corrected and each note was yeah. laboriously placed. No, no, watch the Sign of the Times concert film. Watch any videos of him playing live and you'll recognize that's how high the bar was set for live performance. Yeah. It's been amazing for us uh, as fans to see a whole new generation find him through the guitar because mm -hmm. now you can actually go on YouTube and, and these video sites and, and they're not taken down anymore. There's the live performance and that seems to be hooking people the most. Do you think guitar was his best instrument? No, I think he was naturally, I think his best instrument actually may have been um, his capacity to write in, in, in a sense. I mean, he just was a genius with melody and a genius with rhythm. Yeah. He was so athletic, he could do just about anything. And I want to say that maybe he was a better piano player, but maybe not. Maybe guitar was his best instrument. He really did everything so well. Um, 
there was a, a poignant moment at Sunset Sound. This is right after Purple Rain came out and he was getting a lot of press. And one of the big magazines, might've been Time or Newsweek, did a story on him. And we were in the control room at Sunset Sound. Uh, by we, I mean, uh, it was myself and Peggy and it was Wendy and Lisa, and maybe other members of the revolution. And he was reading the article, the magazine article out loud to us. And it referred to him as a keyboard player. And I never forgot this moment because he kind of set the magazine down and he looked off into the distance and he says, nobody ever talks about me as a guitar player. He picked mm -hmm. the magazine back up and I thought, you're right. And they should be. Yeah. They, they described him then as a, as a piano player, as a keyboard player. And um, they should have been writing about him as a, as a guitarist as well. And, you know, Susan, one of the points I made early on when I started going down the Prince rabbit hole uh, and I discussed openly with the audience is I religiously collected every single edition of every guitar magazine from the mm -hmm. late 80s into the 90s. I never I, I have no recollection. I'm good at remembering that type of stuff. I don't have any recollection of Prince ever being mentioned seriously. And uh, it got brought up in the YouTube comment section. It got into some you know, some people got kind of hot-headed about why and this and that, but um, I, I now looking back, as he was such a phenomenal player, I, I find that really odd. You know, there's that story that's made the rounds, I don't know how true it is or not, of uh, someone asking Eric Clapton, what's it like to be the greatest guitar player in the world? And him saying, I don't know, ask Prince. Yeah. But uh, truly, it's because he was so gifted with melody, because he was so gifted with rhythm, because he was a songwriter, mm -hmm. Because he had a strong, not as developed as others, but a strong innate sense of harmony. You put him on any instrument capable of playing rhythm or melody or a harmonic part, and he's going to be endlessly fluid. Writers, if they have the physical dexterity, are going to be great on their instrument, mm -hmm. if they have that physical dexterity, which he just so happened to have. So he was able to take his writing skills and he, he was a great soloist. Mm -hmm. My personal favorite solo of his is Joy and Repetition. Yes. Oh, that's... Do you think he could have helped himself a little bit there though, by putting that higher up in the mix? If you, know, if you want to be known as a guitar player and you've got a solo as great as that is, maybe really throw it up in the four there. I don't think he ever... I don't think that that sort of thing would even cross his mind. I think he yeah. um, he knew how to communicate to people and he made a safe assumption that people were listening. And I think he was self-aware enough to know, well, if they're not listening, they're listening to other music. Let them go ahead. Anyone who wants to hear a brilliant guitar solo can hear it right here. And I don't yeah. need to go out on a limb or do anything extra special to help them hear it. It's here. I think yeah. I'm, I'm guessing that that's how he thought. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it makes it makes sense, and certainly uh, all evidence points to that in in the time after, you know, with with other engineers, and it, there's a consistency that is there throughout the recordings, regardless of you know Paisley Park being built and you know the changes that went through there. Um, mm -hmm. I suppose, sort of a, as a, 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 I'll I'll ask a question and. Take it whichever way uh, you, you'd like to, to take it. From a talent point of view, we know that there are songs in the vault that are starting to be released. We know that you know there are probably hundreds that we'll never hear. But as a percentage of his talent, how much do you think we've heard on the songs that we do have? 
Well, when he first passed away, I used to say that my guess was we knew maybe 30% of what was in the vault. And then through Michael Howe, I was introduced to uh, a fellow, I'm, I'm not gonna mention him by name, but he was one of the foremost collectors of bootlegs in Europe. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll never forget it. We were having a Zoom meeting and this fellow looked straight into the camera over Zoom and said to me, we have everything. <laughs> we have everything. And I said, no, you don't. And he said, we <laughs> do. And he shared with me pages and pages and pages, spreadsheets of titles. And at least from my era, I know that a tremendous amount was leaked. So from from, from the period of the mid 80s, that's the only period I can speak to. I know that nearly every title that I worked on is out there somewhere. Sure. And in terms of what he sort of his, his talent abilities, his skill set, are they reflected on the songs that we've heard or are the parts of his musicianship that we have mm -hmm. no idea how deep it went? Such a good question. Um, Michael Howe asked me about a little batch of songs that he sent my way. It was little, just noodlings, really, just little pieces. Um, some of these pieces ended up on the album 1983, A Piano and a Microphone. If you want to know anything about Prince, listen to that album. It'll tell you a lot about his musicianship. But anyway, there were some noodlings. And there were some experimental things there. There's a, a song called I Am Five. And it's, okay. I, 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 it was, it was, it was, it was ex experimental for Prince, and it showed a facet of his musicality that isn't normally seen. I strongly urged Michael to release it for that reason. The lyrics are a bit startling, and I think that might have been the reason. I don't know, but I'm guessing that might have been the reason why <clears throat> Michael didn't want to release it because he didn't think it was representative of the Prince that we know. But, yeah, there were. It's a it's a tiny sliver, but there was some there were some aspects of his musicality that the public didn't get to see. At least, again, speaking for that era, I think yeah. um, the album Crystal Ball, the ill-fated album that was never released, came close to showing bits of that, but then Prince veered off in a different direction. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's a, a fascinating period that where you know the revolution is dissolving around him, and yeah. it, it, is it three months that he spends at Sunset at the, the tail end of nineteen eighty six, virtually day. How, how long it was? It was a long period of time. Yeah, how how was that for you to to just never see daylight in that sense? You know that. Was it clear that it was a project that he was working on at that point because so much of the rest of his life was sort of falling apart? The Sign of the Times period was one of the most remarkable slices of Prince's life for, for one reason. The fact that it was a dark period in his life and everything on paper should have led to him doing a um, an album that was not successful because he appeared to not be at his best. And yet the album that he turned out ended up being the album that is also alongside Purple Rain regarded as a masterpiece. 
Excuse me for one second. Sure. Sorry about my voice. Um, no worries. So at in 86, 87, end of 86, Prince is now um, approaching 30. His band has broken up. His engagement to Susanna Melvoin is broken off. And he and Susanna and Wendy Melvoin and Lisa were tight, tight, tight as friends and, and as companions for a long time. So all that is going away. Bobby Z, his childhood friend is now gone. His band is leaving him. The new band that's coming in, Sheila E and her band, they have a totally different musical aesthetic, totally different sound, which means songs that he would have wrote and, and, and arranged for the revolution, he can't do anymore because Sheila's band, they're not about that. He's gotta, he's gotta change musically. It was also a dark time because uh, hip hop was, was now becoming the dominant musical genre and Prince didn't do hip hop. That wasn't gonna happen. And the kind of dance funk that he and Madonna and Michael Jackson did and George Michael and others like that, it's not popular anymore. We're done. So at that point, when you're being told as a young artist, it's time for you to leave the party because these new young people are coming in, leave the party. How the hell on your way outside the door do you deliver another masterpiece? How do you do yeah. that? I know he was sad during that time. It was, he was quiet, he was somber. It just was, just was a fairly dark and quiet and somber and sad period. And he turned out songs like Sign of the Times. It's, it's a almost a given. Up. It's almost a given to us now that Purple Rain was always going to be a smash hit and Sign of the Times was always going to be a, a critical sensation. Mm -hmm. But you were there for two home runs that maybe he shouldn't have been up to bat at that time. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the confidence to ask for a movie at 24, 25 years of age. And then the, as you say, Sign of the Times, you know, sort of won everyone, regardless of whether you were a Prince fan or not. Do you think he was ever thinking this could go the wrong way and I could be working down at McDonald's, you know, prior to asking for a movie and Purple Rain? Or do you think he just had that innate sense of if I'm this talented, it will work. It, it will just come. It will come good. He was pretty, pretty highly confident at the time when I joined him, but I'm remembering, um, he knew, he knew that, you know, this might not work. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but Ebert and Roper, the two movie critics, yeah. had oh, yeah. a show called At the Movies, and they would review movies, and they'd either give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And shortly before the Purple Rain movie came out, uh, we were at Prince's house on Kiowa Trail, and I remember him coming into the room where the band members and I were, and he said, oh, man, I had a dream last night that they reviewed Purple Rain. And that he said, and that fat guy was tearing me up. <laughs> <laughs> and he was laughing about it. But and as a matter of fact, Roger Ebert just loved the movie. But he was well aware this might not work. Yeah, uh, yeah. But he had he had an awful lot of confidence and uh, he was so happy that period right around purple rain he was just so damn happy that's why i have a soft spot in my heart for around the world in a day because we were making mm. the next album while we're waiting for purple rain to be released so we still didn't know which way the dominoes were going to fall um we still didn't know if, if it was going to be a hit or not but he was very optimistic during around the world in a day and very very happy
Yeah. Can I ask you, uh, I suppose, on a, a slight tangent, I've heard you speak a, a couple of times about him around kids and how he was, you know, he loved children and loved, mm -hmm. uh, I, I've heard people, you know, 20 years after like Susan Moonsey and, and Brenda Bennett, he was adamant about meeting Brenda's son, you know, get him up here, bring him to me. I want to meet him and then sort of sideline them for, you know, a couple of hours. What was he like around kids? Because we never hear this. He had a, he had, um, well, there's a difference between being childlike and childish. There was nothing about him that was childish, but there were a lot of things about him that were childlike. He had a sense of wonder and he had a, 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 a touching sense of trust. He had a respect for authority. He was a respectful person. So he had a lot of traits in common with children. I think he responded uh, to their immediacy. I, I read a sentence, this was the author David Sedaris who said about children, and this always, sentence always stuck with me, but David said, they can't imagine that you don't love them, which mm -hmm. seems to describe children pretty well. They just assume, yeah, you like me. Sure you do. Yeah. And, and, and I think Prince um, responded to that in children. They, they look at you with, they're not, they don't have an agenda. They don't want you to judge them a certain way. They can look at you really purely like dogs can. Like, I like you. I think you like me. And he was eager to to participate in that exchange. That's lovely, thank you. And uh, just touching on sort of Galpin and and the area of, of Jan Hassan, have you seen it lately? What you know, the the housing uh, development that they've done on that that old Galpin plot? No, no. What's it look like? It's uh, it's a housing. I would call it an estate now. So it's a, a series of houses. So three or four cul-de-sacs with quite affluent housing uh, homes that have been built on, on the area. They've named a few of the roads to, to sort of suggest Paisley or uh, one of them's named after his mom, Matty. Mm. Um, so it's, it's interesting, but it's equally it's heartbreaking to, to see that land uh, now being put to use because it's, it's not his home anymore, you know? Yeah, his home became Paisley Park in the mm -hmm. later years of his life. That was that was his his home. And as long as that can be preserved, uh, I sigh because um, I'd like to see it function as a working studio. I'd like to see musicians in those studios and in those rehearsal spaces constantly the way it was when he envisioned yeah. it, the way it was in, in the late 80s. Uh, I believe that today it is being um, marketed as a tourist attraction and kind of a museum. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that he would have liked that. I don't know that that's the spirit of Prince. Uh, nothing he loved more than making music. And he related to people through yeah. music making. Could we just take another? Speaking, sorry, uh, just speaking. No, you're on a roll. On... Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, on the legacy side of things, there's a Netflix documentary that's been mooted for a while now. Has anyone approached you? Mm. Uh, I always say yes. So if, mm -hmm. if they ask me, I, I will always participate. What would you I've want heard, the, the what would you want the documentary to focus on so that we get a, a true indication of, of Prince as a man 
and Prince is a talent, Prince is an artist. So I think there are, you know, there are there are different audiences for 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 Prince for any artist, and and di different audiences are of different importance when we're considering a legacy. So there's the fans, and the fans want to know who was this guy who made all this music that I like so much. So you can answer questions for fans, and you can fill in the blanks maybe in their understanding of who he was. Then there's other musicians who want to know. How in the hell do you get to be that good at that many different instruments? What was it about this guy? Yeah, <laughs> that got him to that point musically. How did he do it? Then there's a third audience, which is um, the music critics and scholars. And I'll lump in with that audience, the historians. Um, they want to know, does his music hold up? How will we regard him? 50 years from now, 100 years from yeah. now, does it hold up? Where does he stand in the arc of music history? Some historians will want to know the man a little bit better to understand his place in the greater culture, uh, pop culture of, of the Western world. Where does he fit in? What contribution did he make? So there's all these different audiences. And I think about it when I'm asked to do an interview in, in terms of whether or not I, my role as someone who knew him is to be a reporter or a gatekeeper. And um, sometimes, you know, the temptation is there to guard what you think might be private things, mm -hmm. keep that vault locked. But I don't believe in that. And I don't think that's what he would have wanted. I believe in being a reporter and telling mm -hmm. anyone who's interested, here's what I saw. Yeah. Um, here's what I'd I like yeah, no, absolutely. I just want to try and get in a, a few more Patreon questions, if you're okay with that. Um, uh, so we have a, a Patreon, T-Bro J. He, he would like me to ask you uh, where you would rate Prince among the world's greatest guitarists. You know, it's a funny thing about rankings because humans love to do it. We love our top 10 lists. We love to know who's yeah. number one. But when you think about it, it's really just a parlor game. Because who the hell's yes. going to say, you know, who's better than who? So uh, I'm old enough to remember that when I was in high school in the early 1970s, you music fans belonged to one of three camps. It was either Jimmy Page, Eric Clapton, or Jeff Beck. And you debated who was the best. For me personally, it was Jimmy Page. For many others, Clapton or Beck. So we all have our standard of what good is. Was, of course, there were the Hendrix lovers, but they're like, okay, he's in a class by himself, so you're not part of this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so where would I rank Prince? I'd definitely put him as a guitarist in the top 10 of the renowned, renowned guitarists. As for who's number one, I suppose it depends on what you listen for. I liked Paige because I liked his performance gestures and his tone. I love the way he attacks attacks an instrument i'm listening for that well he put a whole lot of love into his playing yes <laughs> so yes, he says, he other, okay. other people are gonna are gonna be listening for they have a different value system and uh, so yeah i'll just say the prince is in the top 10 okay uh, another one i'm gonna ask is uh for a man named briggs our good friend tony a uh, great patreon uh he wants to know what your two most favorite tracks that you've worked on with prince and what are your two favorite guitar tracks of this yeah, um, one of my absolute favorite recordings with him was Condition of the Heart on the mm -hmm. um, Around the World in a Day album. We did it, the two of us alone, 
at the warehouse. And uh, I think it's one of his most honest lyrics that he ever wrote. He um, was in love with someone who um, wasn't sure about him. She actually was with someone else at the time and he was just madly in love with her. And yet there were all these women who were in love with him. Mm. And he's, he's writing about um, that feeling, you know, like he could have other women, but the one he wants is just, you know, holding them off. And when he says, every day is a yellow day, I'm blinded by the daisies in your yard. I mean, holy <laughs> moly. Some of his most original and poetic lyric writing. His arrangement skills are on full display here. His vocal performance, he's utterly fearless on the mic. And that mind, that mind that hears the full arrangement as he's adding each instrument, that's on full display. I mean, when you listen to that piece, it's not done on a digital audio workstation. It's done on analog tape that is moving forward in real time and you're laying down tracks based on how this whole thing is going to unfold. That's some high level thinking. So Condition of the Heart is one of my favorites. And I mentioned earlier, Joy and Repetition. I'll never forget doing that, doing that recording and hearing that vocal. He plays, he ends his guitar solo on that high sustained note and then comes in with this vocal that's up there in the stratosphere and sings this high note. Name me one person that can do both, that has that vocal prowess and that guitar prowess. Oh, and by the way, can go over and do the same thing on drums or bass or piano. <laughs> oh, exactly. That's part of the allure of Prince, yeah. you know? Yeah, um, those stand out. So oh, how much me... of condition of the heart did he have? at the start of that day? Was it built there and then, or was that, you know, a lyric sheet that you would just pick out? I, I wish my memory were uh, more clear. You know, it was, I was close to 40 years ago, 35 years ago now, I wish it were more clear, but I, I do remember being there. The, 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 the room, the rehearsal room was fairly dark. He had a lot of candles lit. And I remember one track, after another coming up and my astonishment just growing. This guy <laughs> is doing this painting almost imagine 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 a Michelangelo or a Rembrandt saying, I'm gonna I'm gonna put in all the blue parts right now. Taking the paint mm. just putting in these little bits of color where the blue goes. Okay, you don't know what this is. And I'm gonna put in where the green goes, where the brown goes, where the yellow goes. And you're watching with each subsequent track, this whole composition come together. Mm. And that was one of the most mind blowing sessions I ever had. I just was, I was dumbstruck with his genius. Could you, could you tell the days where it was almost divine? Like, you know, he was that vessel. Did they feel different in the moment than days, uh, a standard day? Mm, so when, when, you, when you mentioned uh, Parade and he lays down one, one drum track after another, did it feel different? He might have ascribed uh, divine intervention to, to those moments. There were times when in the studio where he was supremely sure of himself. He knew exactly how this piece is gonna go. That was a lot of the time compared to other artists. A lot of the times he was very sure of himself. And yeah, that did feel different when he was noodling 
and searching and trying to come up with something. A lot of our, our dance pieces at that time just started with a groove. He didn't have a song, he didn't have a melody, he didn't have lyrics. He just had a, he had a groove in his head or he'd go to a drum machine, he'd program what he felt like moving to, just what felt good. He'd program something and, uh, and then, and then, okay, now I've got this groove. Now here's an idea for a melody and here's, here's an idea for some lyrics. So that would be just the usual kind of construction that most musicians do. That you could go either way with him. Did did you do you have any memory of him in the studio, like where he's trying to work out a solo, saying, "Well, I'm using this chord, so I have to use this scale," or songwriting, going, "Well, this is in the key of D, so we're going to go to the sixth chord here," or was it all just, um, what's the right word, innate almost uh, how he put things together? Yeah. He didn't voice those things out loud. If you talked to his musicians, they would be able to tell you more about his thought process when coming up with chords and making decisions about inversions and things like that. Certainly when he was recording with his engineers, he's not going to voice those thoughts mm. out loud. Um, but there's certainly, you know, not everything was, was pre-recorded in his head. There were plenty of times when he, he fiddled around and found voicings that appealed to him. What he spent more time searching for, I think in, in my recollection was timbres, finding the right keyboard patches, finding the okay. right timbres. A perfect case in point is the very first iteration of Wind Doves Cry. So he, he had the song, he had the lyrics, he had the melody. And um, the very first recording of that, it was really heavy distorted heavy guitar. He was trying to do another thing and it was a little bit more rock oriented for the Purple Rain album. And this is what it sounds like when doves cry. And he was dissatisfied with that as he should be because it was too heavy. That's not at all what it sounds like when doves cry. Mm -hmm. So uh, he recognized that you know, the song is good but the timbres are all wrong. So he had to strip back all those heavy distorted sounds Try again. Let's let's just keep just the the drum groove. He put on a, a kind of a funk bass part. Let's do it with more clean sounds, more percussive sounds. Let's leave more space. And then he realized this has become so rhythmic and percussive in nature that I don't need the bass. Bass isn't doing anything. He could mute the bass and take it out. And he had everything he needed. He had melody. He had rhythm, and he had a little bit of a counter melody in that in that lead line. Wow. I'll squeeze in another Patreon question. Uh, this is from our good friend, Tracy Norman. Uh, was there a particular band member or, or band members or other musicians that Prince had in the studio more than others during the time that you worked with him? And what is your favorite Prince album that you worked on? Mm. Um, he'd have Wendy and Lisa in quite a lot um, because they had a musical background that he did not have. So Wendy had a jazz guitar background. So she knew chords and inversions that Prince didn't know. Lisa had some classical training in her youth. She knew music that Prince didn't know. So they added a flavor to his music that fanned it out most completely. Uh, the other musicians, Bobby Z, Matt Fink, and uh, Mark Brown, were all from the same school of musicianship as Prince. So they didn't add anything he didn't already have, with the exception of Matt's incredible keyboard playing. They didn't add much that Prince didn't already have. But Wendy and Lisa expanded out a little bit more. And of course, the one constant uh, was Prince's friend and companion, uh, Eric Leeds, the saxophone player. Eric added something to his music that Prince couldn't do at all because he didn't play horn. And Eric was such a perfect fit for Prince for so, so many years. As far as favorite album, of the time I worked with him, we did not only some Prince albums, but we did Sheila E. and 
there was an Apollonia 6 album and there was the time and Jill Jones, a little bit I worked on that, not much. But anyway, of all those albums that we did, my absolute favorite, I think, is Around the World in a Day because my memories of it are that really fertile period right before Purple Rain came out. After Purple Rain came out, everything changed. He was now a superstar. And now um, th th there's a different atmosphere around him. And he had different marching orders. I mean, until you get to become a superstar, your goal in the studio is try to become a superstar. But after you become one, now your goal is, is your legacy. What's your legacy going to be? What are they going to say about you? Can you keep this up? So I liked that innocent period of around the world in a day, and I hear it in the music. So on that vein, if Michael Howe said to you, "Here's the vault key, in you go," what's mm -hmm. what would you go looking for? What section? Uh, gosh, ooh la la! When we were in the south of France, we were making the Under the Cherry Moon movie. There was a mobile truck there, the Advision mobile truck yep. from, uh, from London with the crew, three guys: Larry, Barry, and Gary. Love those guys, and uh, he had me mm -hmm. in the in the truck during the long two hour French lunches. He, he didn't eat. He'd come into the truck, and for two hours, Prince could get a lot of work done. So we did we did some things there that I really loved. Splash is one of them, yeah. and Sexual Suicide is another. And those were a couple of pieces that I loved very much. There were some other things right around that time that I remember being pretty darn cool not long after that we did a piece that i think has been released called in a large room with no light yes i loved that one yeah, yeah. I, I mean I, splash, I go right for that era hmm. splash i think he, he toyed about with it in the early 2000s and it came out in hmm. some form um and sexual suicide he put out on the crystal ball bootleg collection in the late 90s did you keep up with with his output after after you worked or maybe since his passing have you revisited anything that's the unfortunate thing. Um, when you work with an artist, you can never again listen to their music without the associations and the memories. And my memories were good, but I would like to listen to his music and just appreciate the musical quality without thinking about where we were and what we did and what was going on with him at that time. It was such an intense, intense period in my life. It's a formative period. So of course, listening to his music is, is 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 going to affect that. But I'm getting there. I'm slowly getting to that point where I can I can listen to him again and separate memories from what mm -hmm. I'm hearing in the moment, and once again appreciate just how damn great this guy is. Yeah, I think you know if you if you start with the '90s stuff, perhaps, and where you don't have an. Uh, uh, personal mm. connection to that music it, it brings you back in maybe that way yeah. are there any songs that you have an oral memory and you actually use those songs to remember something by oral memory do you mean like playing a song in my head uh, well just put the song on because it takes you back to a, a particular situation do you have any of those sure Sure. Uh, uh, mostly, though, I think it, if I'm inspired to play a Prince song, it's it's because I love it. It's certainly not because I, I worked on it. I mentioned two songs, Wonderful Ass and Moonbeam Levels earlier. I just love those two tracks. I did not work on them, yeah. but uh, I, I just I just love them. And so often 
when I choose to listen to something by Prince, it's going to be because I love it and not necessarily because I want to fire up those memories. I liked uh, his musicology album and um, yeah. And then there was the, mm -hmm. the black album. I, I did all the songs on the black album, except for one, but some nice pieces on there as well that I liked. Yeah. I'm curious if you, you were to listen to the later work, whether songs would appear that were from your time and, and unbeknownst to us, they've been held over for 10, 15, 20 years, perhaps. Yeah, I could do that. I could dive into yeah. that. I mean, some of those, those memories are, are somewhat bittersweet and they're tinged with the sadness of his passing. Mm -hmm. You know, he didn't, he didn't deserve that. But no. who knows what any of us deserve. And, mm -hmm. and for those of us who knew him in the 80s, it's extremely painful to realize that he was hurting in the last years of his life. I know Wendy and Lisa and I have talked about it. If we had only known, you know, if we had known he was in so much pain, we would have reached out. I, I don't know that he would have wanted anything from any of us, but boy, that's not someone you wanted to have suffer. And um, it's tempting to think that, that that pain could have been alleviated, but maybe not. Maybe he knew exactly what he was doing. I've heard from others who knew him in the last years of his life, and they attest to the fact that he was certainly in a tremendous amount of physical pain. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very sad. And it's, uh, it's, it's one of those situations where I thought I'd see him like B.B. King on a, on a stool playing at 80. And then there's the other part of me now that I've had a few years to to take it on board to say he never lost his voice. You know, it, we never had to watch him degrade. In front of a microphone, he always had the, the talent. He might uh, put something else up front so it lessens his, his necessity to dance or, or move. But he was always the perfect showman. And I, I think had he lived longer, we would have seen some sort of degradation because age would have uh, caught up with him. Yeah, it, it's sad. It's painful to recognize how isolated he became, emotionally isolated, and how he had people around him, but he uh, built a wall around himself, a psychic wall early in his career, out of necessity. That's what uh, I've learned. A pop artist needs to do if you want to, prevent having your psyche be that heavily invaded because it'll get invaded unless you put up a psychic wall by that I mean just shut yourself off don't allow people access to everything that you're thinking so he did all that but in creating that wall um, if you build it well enough uh, you'll never get out you've just built yourself a mental prison and you're alone in there I think that's what happened to him at the end of his life do you think Paisley Park was the tool that he used to separate himself off? I think Paisley was his refuge. It was it was the outer manifestation of many of his dreams. He dreamt of a place where people could come together, men and women and different races could come together and, and they could all make music together. And, and uh, I think he held on to that dream his whole life. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's a staggering amount of ambition for for a man to be able to put Paisley Park together and and bring that into reality. I think it's it's a crown jewel in in certainly the legacy that will bring on new fans for the future. I hope so. I hope so. Um, 
I have a to to, to uh, kind of lighten things a little bit. I have a question about Paisley Park. It's kind of uh, I hope to go there next year. Uh, I know Solitary Adventure has already been there. I'm hoping to go next year. I am a foodie. What are the good places around there to eat? Can you name one or two? I don't know. I haven't been <laughs> to Minneapolis. I was in college yeah. there uh, yeah. up until 2004. I would recommend, I don't know if it's still there, but you can look it up, um, the place that Prince loved, that was his favorite, which is Rudolph's Barbecue. So okay. Rudolph's hmm. Barbecue um, in, in Minneapolis be open yeah. be open late and uh he he loved he loved that and when we were out at sunset sound occasionally he'd have someone uh, one of his staff go to rudolph's get an order of ribs and then put them on a plane and fly them out <laughs> in los angeles <laughs> they uh they love rudolph's barbecue so you, you might check that out wow um I have another question. We have a wonderful patron. His name's Ellie. Uh, Ellie is is great. He's he he's, loves Prince. Ellie is very intellectual with how he poses his questions, and it confuses me sometimes. I'm hoping the solitary adventure uh, was able to dissect it better. But I have a question, kind of inspired by one of his questions. It was, uh, what was what was it like when you told him that? Oh, we need to retake that. If he just laid something down, was he always good about it or did you ever have to tell him that or was he just oh you didn't want to tell him that <laughs> no i know that's kind of where i'm going yeah <laughs> it didn't happen often it didn't no. happen often you, you, you uh, i uh, peggy would say the same thing any engineer who worked for him you get into his rhythm you learn his habits because they were his methodology was pretty constant it needed to be constant because his creativity was always flowing he couldn't have his tools and his methodology changing all the time so you knew you could anticipate him and you could be in record when he needed to be record but it's electronic equipment things do happen stuff does break down so when it would break down you the best thing to do was just give it to him fast and straight this just this channel just destroyed I've, I've already assigned you to another track. Let's take it again. And he'd, he'd be okay. He was a reasonable man. He, okay. he, he was reasonable. Um, <laughs> I remember one time, oh this, is, oh, this was a rough one. So we were working, just the two of us, uh, we we're working at the, the Flying Cloud Drive warehouse. It's a day off for the band. It must've been a Sunday. And the damn tape machine just kept breaking, breaking down. It would go into record and then it'd pop out of record and stop. And I had never seen this particular problem happen before. So he was really frustrated and I, I, I looked through it, but it wasn't any, it wasn't the master record relay. It wasn't any of the obvious solutions. And he got frustrated and went home and he's walking out the door. He says, I don't care who you have to call, call Japan if you have to and walked out the door. And I thought, well, it's not made in Japan. It's made in Florida. It's a yeah. Sunday and I don't have to call anybody. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, so I got there and spread the schematics out and traced oh, that wow. signal all the way, you know, from the from the motors and the, the main capstan motor all the way down to the record relay and back up. And I'll be damned if I didn't find a capstan motor is what's responsible for establishing the speed of the tape. And the output of the capstan motor goes through a little capacitor before it goes down to the logic circuits and the master record relay and that damn capacitor had shorted out. The odds oh. of my finding that, I don't know how I did it, but I found it and I replaced the cap and I was able to call him at home and say, it's fixed, come on back now. <laughs> now <laughs> he would have been really hard pressed to have another engineer who was also a technician who could do component level repairs 
on his tape machine right there on the spot. To have someone like that, who mm -hmm. also happens to be female, who also happens to be a huge Prince fan, who also yeah. happens to be able to stay up all damn night with him. Yeah, yeah. you're not gonna find that anywhere else. But he didn't know that and he didn't care. So you couldn't brag about yourself to him. Like you couldn't say, yeah, and I did that and you should be really grateful. He don't care. All yeah. he wants to know is, can I record? And you tell him, yeah, you can record. He comes and you work. But down on some level, deep level, he knew. He knew because yeah. he was generous with, with bonuses and, you know, signing your birthday card and just little things like that. He knew. He, he was lucky to have the people he had. So now you telling us that story, I, I this is one of the questions I want to ask you. How do you feel now about, you know, when Pro Tools and, and you know, basically a lot of people can do their recordings at home now with software like that. How do you feel about the advent of Pro Tools and Cubase and that type of software as compared to in the 80s? Well, these are marvelous tools, and um, they say, you know, that humans create technology and then our technology changes us. So the methodology of making records is very, very different than what it was in the analog era. But I know one thing that's not different is the human brain. Music lovers like myself, people who don't play or sing, non-musicians, the only way we have music is if other people make it. We won't have it otherwise. So there'll always be those people who want to be on input and are eager to hear music that others make. Likewise, you musicians will always be eager to make music for listeners. So that will never change regardless of what equipment we're using. I don't use those tools, but I've, I've seen how my students use them and they're finding ways to achieve the same function, but with, with a different method and a different tool. I, I've I, seen you I, mention. Yeah. Sorry, so, I was just going to say. I was just going to say in closing about that question. I have a Cubase setup from ten years ago. It's not even. It's not even connected to the internet now. It works for me good, and I don't want to get caught uh -huh. up in all the add-ons and plugins. And I have friends that do that. And I'm just like, it's it's kind of intimidating, but. Yeah, I liked the tactile sensation of having my hands on a console. I liked mm -hmm. sculpting sound by by touching. The actual tools and my friend Tommy whom I mentioned earlier said when when digital recording tools came out he said it's like kneading dough with one finger and it's mm. somebody else's finger <laughs> it's like putting your hand <laughs> on someone's arm it doesn't feel like you there's an interface between you and the sound that you want to make well of yeah. course there is it's just our perception we just have to get used to it I'm, yeah. I'm glad I work in the analog era that's opened up two thoughts for me. The first is your students at Berkeley. Do they ask you about prints? Because I, I saw an interview not long after he passed where you said not so much. And I wonder if that's changing. Oh, yeah, it did change. It changed um, after he passed away. Um, and I should say I just recently retired. So I'm still teaching for Berkeley online, but I'm not at Berkeley the campus anymore. Okay. But, um, yeah, I, I, the students that I saw from 2008 when I joined to 2016 when Prince passed away, they very rarely asked me anything about Prince or cared to know who he was. In fact, there was one time I played a Prince song. It was Bat Dance in class. I was trying to illustrate mm -hmm. a point, so I showed them the video. And I just looked at their faces and they're like, couldn't care less. It really it didn't inspire them in any way. 
But after he passed away and they learned more about who he was, I started getting more people asking me questions about him. And some, some students who want to follow in his footsteps, students who are multi-instrumentalists play everything and they want to know, how do I do everything myself? That's a rough conversation to have. <laughs> um, name another artist who's done it is what you want to yeah. say to them. Name another artist who was his own producer and wrote and sang and played everything on his own records. And then you'll know how common that is before we have that conversation. Yeah. Are you aware of what it is you're trying to achieve? Yeah. yeah. It opens up a, a thought that I had uh, a couple of months ago where somebody asked me, would Prince have been successful in any other era of time? And I, I thought, well, of course, as, you know, he was a consummate musician. And then the thought that actually put stopped me in my tracks was, would he be as sort of influential as he was? Could he be in today's music industry? And I had to really give that some thought to say, is there enough money in it? Can people actually break through in the right way? Do you think Prince could have been successful in today's very strange music industry? I think so, because he had two qualities. One, a high native intelligence, and two, a driving ambition, that pressure that I mentioned earlier. So take, for example, someone like Lil Nas X. Hmm. You've got a kid with talent, and he's there with his phone, and he's putting pieces together to make music. Berkeley just... Um, hired a, a replacement for me, a, uh, a hip hop record producer, a mixer named Pat Viala out of New York. And he and I just had a long, long conversation on Friday. He's telling me about the youth of today. And he said, it's just so mind blowing when you see that there are kids who are, who have a million followers and they're 16 years old and they've never had a music lesson in their life. Mm -hmm. But they get these tools, whether it's GarageBand or just something on their phone, and they're creating something that many, many, many young people are saying, that's music to my ears. That's what I want. Mm -hmm. And I have no doubt that if Prince were born in, I don't know, 1990, or no, let's say if he were born in 2000, if he were born in 2000, he'd be one of those kids. He'd be making music with the cheap tools that he'd had. And because he was so strong entrepreneurially, understanding how the business works and how to position himself so that his artistry is, creates desirable objects, I have no doubt that he'd be at the front of the curve in marketing himself. It's just the kind of thinker that he was. All things being remember, in childhood and all that. You know. Sure. Do you remember any conversations that you had with him? where maybe years later you thought, oh, wow, he, he really saw that way ahead of time. He definitely was ahead of the curve. I remember around the time of Purple Rain when I first joined him, I remember him saying at rehearsal one day, he said, you know what, the in the future, melody is not gonna be important in music anymore. And I thought, no. He, and he said, uh, it's gonna be bass and drums. It, it, it won't be melody. He was right. Mm -hmm. he he could see that coming i suppose you could see with the advent of hip-hop he could see the writing is on the wall this is where we're going and that if you give people a strong rhythm and you give them lyrics that melody will be less of an important feature in pop music anyway it's still an important feature yeah. elsewhere so yeah he was he was ahead of the curve i remember hearing the story i believe this was in the 90s in the london 
Sunday Times, he included a free copy, a free CD mm. of his latest album in people's Sunday newspaper. That was in the 90s. Yeah. He knew, again, in the future, music won't be bought, music will be shared. I'm going to start now because this is the way this is going. He also was yeah. smart enough, I think, in the 80s to recognize that extra musical items like movies and things like that and nightclubs like glam slam and, and all of the, all those extra musical items are going to be a huge factor in an artist's career success and he jumped on that right away i mean what 24 year old kid does a semi-autobiographical movie of his life you yeah. that much life you're 24 years old <laughs> but he was smart enough to recognize that you sell music not just through the music but through the extra musical items jay-z and others followed in his footsteps yeah um one of the things we talk about with Prince, like he was so proficient on so many different instruments. But another thing that got me through my rabbit hole journey here uh, is um, he's proficient at different styles on the guitar. So he must, it tells me that he really had a quite the listening taste with music. Like, was there any bands or acts that he was really into that might surprise some people? He was quite a sponge, but mostly he loved pop music. So I mentioned Lisa Coleman before. She turned him on to Eric Satie, and I would hear those records playing in his house. He was already a Joni Mitchell fan, so he and Wendy bonded over Joni. But most of the time, if I would go to his house and the turntable was, was playing and there was a record on, it would usually be a pop record. Okay. Um, it might be Madonna or Kate Bush or Culture Club or something like that. But he he was a, he was a huge fan of, of those artists. Huge fan. He he really totally had an ear for pop. You mentioned different style styles on guitar. You've got a better ear for this than I do. But in listening to that album, 1983, a piano and a microphone, you listen to what he's doing on piano. And it's so interesting because he'll go into these blues kind of veins and then he never follows it all the way down the road you want to say okay come on all right give us some blues give us a little bit of blues he never finishes the thought he always swings it back to pop and same thing with jazz you can hear all right i'm headed off in a little bit of a jazz direction and he never takes it all the way down the road because he can't help himself he makes a u-turn and he comes right back to pop hooks and pop sensibilities that's essentially the kind of artist he was at his core can, you mentioned Joni Mitchell. Can I ask a question for the fan community? Emotional Pump. Out of all the songs that he had at his disposal, why offer that to Joni? I don't know. Oh, I think he wrote it to, to give especially to her. And I uh, am not as familiar, regrettably, not as familiar with her canon of work at that time. But when he wrote those lyrics, I thought, no, oh, this will never work. <laughs> she, she, she's not going to sing those words I don't know about no. anything else musically chord changes but no and of course it wasn't the right song for her but he really was starstruck with her I mean, he really was starstruck and I don't think he was using his best judgment when he wrote Emotional Pump mm. Did we, Would we be surprised about people who maybe came to the studio to, to see him or join in on the session even? Yeah a lot of folks would 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 show up he um was not always receptive to having visitors he worked with the bangles i remember them being there and and uh sheena easton was there and i suppose there were others but he he didn't like being disturbed while he was working and um 
I remember one time, I'm going to leave this artist's name out because I don't want to embarrass him, but someone that I knew from my earlier years in, in Los Angeles was at the studio and I saw him out there in the courtyard and he said, I'd like to meet Prince. Can you take me in there? And I said, well, let's see, let's see what he's doing. So I went into the control room and I said, so-and-so is here. This is a big name artist and would really like to meet you. And he kind of begrudgingly said, okay. <laughs> and I'll be damned if this rock star didn't come into the studio and Prince didn't say a damn word to him. I mean, this rock star was asking questions and Prince was just being rude. I mean, just rude. It was really embarrassing. He could be the worst of him at that time. Uh, he, he, could be, um, he could be kind of a brat. I have four younger brothers. I know about boys. <laughs> and he could be a brat in a way that uh, young men can be. And that was one of those times where it was just uncalled for. And this rock star ends up saying, well, you know, I'll let you carry on and have a good day. And I just exchanged glances like, I'm so sorry. I didn't know that was going to happen. Uh, that didn't happen all the time. There was a funny instance when he met Eric Clapton face to face and did something funny and it was, it was it was very genuine and they both laughed about it but he had that tendency to yeah. um not want to bond with people and, and be friendly hmm. not with rock stars uh, uh, sure are you uh familiar with with the people who sort of followed you and were his engineers do they tell of any different any growth i suppose any maturity over the years not that I heard of. <laughs> I knew Femi Jaya, who was his main engineer at, at Paisley yeah. for a while. And there's a fellow named Chris Dresden. Do you know him? I, I know the name. Yeah. In the 2000s, we were on a panel together. And it was interesting to hear him describe the prince that he knew in the 2000s was similar, more mm -hmm. mature, much more mature, um, <clears throat> gentler, softer in the 2000s than the guy I knew. Uh, Lisa Chambly worked with Prince in the early 2000s. And there's a, there's a panel that sometimes forms of the women who were Prince's recording engineers. There was Peggy McCreary yes. who started in 1980, myself from 83, Sylvia Massey who worked with him in the 90s and Lisa who worked, worked with him in the 2000s. And when we go down the panel and we each tell our Prince stories, it's interesting how the man evolved, you know, with Lisa Chapley, he was so patient and so tolerant of mistakes, so sweet. I remember the first time we formed that panel, Peggy and I looked at each other like, really? That's the guy you worked with? Is that the guy we worked with? But yeah, he eventually, he eventually did kind of mature. You know, I think, I think something that I just, that I just want to bring this up is that I think sometimes we on the other side as fans or, or whatever, we don't, when someone goes from uh, obscurity to becoming famous, like they don't go to a school to teach them how to deal with it and all the changes that are going to happen too. Like I I'd recently watched a documentary about J.D. Salinger, he wrote Catcher in the Rye. Uh, you know, he had his own issues about wanting to avoid people. We won't get into that, but yeah, he had people driving all over the United States waiting for him at the end of the laneway when he was trying to leave and go get his mail and stuff. Like it would be a little weird trying to be, uh, I think there's an adaptation period for people when they become famous that might be some yeah. things would happen to them that wouldn't happen to normal people. And it would be, you know, I, I, I think I can see more now about why people would be a little bit more disgruntled sometimes at being famous when it's like, 
it might be more invasive to their life and weird things might happen to them that we might not know about. I think that's the biggest reason for one hit wonders. I think, uh, as my friend Tommy would say, the problems of success are no fewer than the problems of failure. They're just different problems. So Gagita had a number one hit single, and uh, I don't think it was number one, but they had a hit single. And, um, <clears throat> and life didn't have fewer problems after they got successful. It had the same number of problems. It just was a different set of problems. And sometimes people realize, I don't like this. I don't like this life. For me, a very eye-opening moment was when I watched the documentary on Amy Winehouse. I think it's just called Amy. Mm. There's a scene. Yeah. There's a scene in that movie where she steps out of her gate, her garden gate. She's a tiny little person, and it's at night, and a wall of flashbulbs go off. Bright lights. Think about that could be more frightening to a human animal or any animal than being pursued by a mob it's yes utterly terrifying and you're a little person you walk out your garden gate and a mob is there in the dark with their beams focused right on you how yeah. do you survive that and you could see with amy when she answered questions in the interviews she didn't have that psychic wall no. she just answered questions they ask a question, I'll answer it. Not a problem. Yeah, Amy, problem. If you give everything you've got to give, honestly and without a filter, don't be thinking that that's going to satisfy that audience and that they're not going to ask for more. The more you give, the more they're going to ask for. Prince did have that native instinct that said, don't give it away. Don't give it away, whatever you do block them from seeing all of you, save something for yourself. Mm -hmm. So after his early stumbles at doing interviews, he realized this is dangerous. He stopped doing them and he, he protected himself. Not every artist uh, knows to do that. Uh, now in the case of like a Michael Jackson or these young artists who are groomed from an early age, they're taught how to do it. I My heart um, feels for the young Justin Bieber's of the world who aren't taught fully. I mean, when you've got young stars who are very musically talented, they can be easily exploited. Someone does need to teach them how to protect themselves or they're going to go off the rails. What was the yeah. saying that Prince said about Minnesota? It, it keeps the bad people out or he had a saying or something. And maybe that kind of is harder for the paparazzi to go to Minneapolis in the dead of winter to get pictures of him, you know, than yeah. he moved out to I Los Angeles. Yeah, I hadn't heard that one, but I could, I can believe that. It was a record executive. I don't remember his name, but he and I were talking about Minnesota and he said, oh, he said, I love Minnesota because they're personally conservative, but politically liberal. He said their motto is, oh, I would never do that, but you go right ahead. <laughs> and that's yeah. kind of how, what it was like in, in Minnesota. I don't know about these days, the George Floyd thing put everything into a yeah. different light, but... In, in the 80s when I was there, that seemed to be the case that these people are personally conservative folks, but politically they were very liberal. They're always a very blue state. And that's why someone like a Bob Dylan or a Prince can come up in Minnesota because they give you that freedom to be whoever you want without, um, without destroying you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very true. Do you think he also stayed in, in Minnesota because it allowed him to sort of control his empire away from the the, the glare of the yeah. record company in California. Yeah, he was he was uncomfortable with being surrounded 
by stars. Uh, he, he was uncomfortable with that. Can I tell you a story? I've told it, of oh, course, course, but yeah. not very often. It's one of my favorite stories, and I wasn't there to see it, but uh, <laughs> it's a good story. So this is the Elizabeth Taylor story. So we were on the Purple Rain tour, and we had seven nights at the Forum in Los Angeles. At that time, we broke a record for shows in Los Angeles. We had seven nights at the Forum, and we had three nights at the Long Beach Arena. Nobody else had done that. Neil Diamond came and broke the record, but whatever. Prince was nominated for an Academy Award or two or something like that for Purple Rain. So all these celebrities were gonna be backstage after the show, including Elizabeth Taylor. Now Prince's management told him, we know you never hang backstage after the set. You always take off. You gotta make an exception this time. This is Hollywood. These are industry people. After your set, you gotta come backstage and meet some people and shake a few hands. Now, simultaneously, we had a recording mobile truck there because he recorded the shows in the big cities. And I was doing the recording. My former boyfriend, the guy who taught me everything about audio electronics was a, a Boston kid named John Sacchetti. Brilliant, Prince loved him. Yeah, thick Boston accent. Uh, John was an electronics genius and a real street kid. And John and I had plans after the show, we were gonna see each other. We hadn't seen each other in a long time. So it's after the show, Prince is backstage and he's surrounded by his bodyguards and he's in conversation with Elizabeth Taylor. I'm not there, I'm in the mobile truck packing up tapes, but John Sacchetti is waiting for me backstage. And in this room, the air is thick with show business. You have two of the biggest stars at this time, this would have been 84, 85, two of the biggest stars in the world, Prince and Elizabeth Taylor in a conversation with one another. And as John Sacchetti later said, her shoes were worth more than his whole life. So you got the <laughs> stars and there's all these folks surrounding them and all eyes are on these two big stars. And everyone is probably thinking to themselves, I'm in the room with these big celebrities. Aren't I great? But John Sacchetti saw something that others didn't see. John Sacchetti saw a guy in trouble. He saw a kid who really didn't want to be there. Prince, who yeah. really needed rescuing. So John threw himself on the sword. And John Sacchetti in his ragged pants and shoes with his long hair, and he's got a beer in his hand. John Sacchetti wedged himself with his beer in between Prince and Elizabeth Taylor. Because John knew, knew Prince, they talked a few times. And John wedges himself with his back to Elizabeth Taylor and his face to Prince. He's like poking a Prince's chest and go, yo Prince, dude, the show was, oh, the show was wicked awesome. With his thick Boston it was wicked awesome. Woo, I was drinking beer out of my eyes. I took two tabs of acid. I smoked a big joint, which was true, before he went to the show. It was fucking awesome. Woo. <laughs> And that was all Prince needed. His bodyguards were able to look at each other and go, oh, who is this heathen who has destroyed our party, who has burst our bubble? And Gilbert Davidson, Prince's guy, was able to say to Prince, I'm sorry, say to Elizabeth Taylor, I'm sorry, we've got to go. There's all kinds of nutcases out here. Grab Prince, get him out of there. Rescue him. I saw John later. He didn't mention it. The person who told me about that was Prince. Afterward, we were in the studio and Prince told me that story. 
And he asked about John. He said, how's he doing? He said, man, that guy saved me. He said, man, I love that guy. Oh. And I asked John about it. And I said, John, what were you thinking? And he said, oh, man. He said, I just saw a brother in trouble. <laughs> I, just <had> to, <laughs> I, I just had to rescue the poor kid. The kid just was miserable. That's, oh, wow. that, that was John. And, and that was John understanding, I know what's going on with you right now. You don't like this. This is not a happy place for you, this big stardom thing. I know where you want to be. You want to be in that mobile truck recording. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get you out of here. And he threw himself on the sword in order to get yeah. Prince out of there. What became of John? Because that's a, a real hero. Well, he deserves great things. Yeah, he's living in Florida now, somewhere in yeah. a, some sort of community, driving a golf cart. I don't know. He's quite a character, but he taught me everything I know about audio electronics. Brilliant, brilliant mm -hmm. guy. Yeah, um, fantastic. I uh, another Patreon question, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, U.S. Agents is another great Patreon that we have. Um, he asked about some of the others that you uh, work with. You know, we know bare naked ladies and, and, and several others. But uh, what's the difference between Prince and the other artists? Or did you notice any? His questions kind of. I'm trying to interpret it there. It's, it could be uh, looked at a few different ways. But did you ever compare the artists to Prince? Not that can anyone can compare to Prince, but. Uh, what was it like working with other artists in comparison to Prince? Yeah, I think it was the confidence and the speed. And by confidence, I'm not saying that other artists aren't confident. So maybe that's not the right word. It was the certainty. At the time when I was with Prince, he knew what tones he wanted, what parts he wanted. He just, he could hear it in his head and he just laid it down. Whereas other artists are more inclined to experiment. Um, I, I have worked with some very creative people, some very, very talented people. And for the most part, when you're making a record, a lot of people who are non-professionals don't realize this. Sometimes you just have to hear it. And you don't know if it's going to work or not until you hear it. You can't just decide in theory, oh, this will be great. You really do have to make that record and listen to that record before deciding if this is what you want. Um, some work faster than others. Bare Naked Ladies worked quite fast. David Byrne was pretty decisive. But most people allow for lots of experimentation. They've got their ideas and they try out the craft in a number of different ways. And Prince mm -hmm. was unique for just laying it down. Uh, I don't know anybody else who, who, who works at that kind of speed and with that level of certainty that this is going to work. Yeah. One of the, the collaborations that intrigues me the most was Claire Fisher. What was it like when Claire's reels would arrive and you'd put them up on the machine? Was that always a great day? Oh, so the very first time the tape was sent out to Claire Fisher in Los Angeles. He did orchestration on a song called River Run Drive, which Bobby Z had written. It was going to be used for the family. Yeah. And we brought that tape into the warehouse and we were rehearsing and put up the tape, pushed up those faders. And it was absolutely stunning. And to my naive ear, I thought I heard things that didn't make sense. I, 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 I thought I heard things in there that didn't seem to fit. And Prince was just absolutely over the moon, just over the moon. He loved it so much. And he said something to the effect of this guy really gets me. This guy is a, is a, is a great collaborate a great partner for me so he started sending more and more tapes out to Claire I would if we were in Los Angeles I would hand deliver the tape to Claire and I would um, 
I'd give some instruction. Prince might have a, a, a few instructions, but usually not much. He wanted to see what Claire did. Claire was very eager to meet Prince in person because they're doing a lot of collaborative work together. But unfortunately, Prince thought that if he ever met him and saw him face to face, it would burst his image, the mental image he had of this guy and that it would, it would ruin it. So I had to keep making up excuses for Prince and I had to keep telling Claire, I'm sorry, he's really superstitious about meeting face to face. We're just gonna have to do it like this, you know, with the exchanging of the tapes. And then on one day, Prince actually did agree to meet him in person. And it was the last time Prince ever worked with him. It just wow. broke the bubble. <laughs> Never worked with him again. Wow. Yeah. And of those Claire Fisher arrangements, are there any that we didn't get to hear at all? There probably are. I can't remember with any certainty, uh, but undoubtedly there are things yeah. that ended up in the vault. Because they, he, Claire and his son Brett tell uh, or did tell uh, stories of the, them getting residual checks or royalty checks because one of the things that was meant for a completely different song would maybe get reused years later uh, on a different track. Yeah, that wasn't, that, that wasn't that unusual for Prince. Uh, he would recognize mm -hmm. this was a good idea, but it was on the wrong song. So he just pulled it and put it on a different one. Yeah. Did he have a, I, I know from my years of playing and, you know, uh, being in front of wedge monitors and playing, I have tinnitus. I was wondering if Prince or anyone in that camp ever had any hearing issues or tinnitus. You know, I never heard of it in the time when I was there. They were all in their 20s. Yeah. Uh, I do know uh, of at least one musician in Prince's band who has a, who has some trouble with one ear, but I don't want to say who it is because no, uh, you know, like, yeah. I don't know if they want that known or not, but uh, he never... He never mentioned it at that time when I was with him. I remember once we were working on uh, working on a song at the warehouse, and he had a, a scarf, a kerchief around his head. You know, it's tied up here at the top, and it was covering his ears. And I asked him, Prince, what are you doing covering your ears when you're working on audio? Mm -hmm. Kind of just just pulled it off so he did listen to me that time i don't know if he developed tinnitus it's uh so so incredibly common in uh, in the music business it's very very common because i don't know if he a lot of the older artists you know they, they tend to switch over to in-ear monitors i don't know if he ever did that or not i don't know either i remember he liked um the floor wedges because mm -hmm. they allowed him to kind of hide his rolling boss pedals behind the floor wedge um he he, 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 he did do time. one tour in the early 2000s the one night alone which was a little bit more uh, jazz heavy sort of instrumentation uh -huh. he did use the any monitors then but he quickly reverted out yeah. oh, wow. i know from chris and um, other engineers who worked with him later that he would still go back and forth and do analog occasionally and then mm -hmm. do digital as well yeah yeah can i ask a uh, there's a, a phrase that, you know, everybody's sort of the lead actor in their own life. But when you're someone who's been around a, a star of the, the size of Prince, we all tend to think of everyone as being supporting actors in their life. But of course, that's not the truth. We are all lead actors in our own life. If somebody made a movie of your life, where would you like them to focus on? And who would you have play you? Oh, goodness. I've never been asked that before. Um, I think uh, this is going to sound kind of bad. 
a running theme in my life, I believe, is the freedom I've been afforded for not being married and not having children. And that sounds kind of bad, but for women in many, many professions, there's a fork in the road. And you can either have the career you want or you have the family domestic life you want. Mm-hmm. It's Very true. Really hard to have both. And that may change, but it may not because women are the ones who physically give birth to babies and have the dependent organism on them. So a running theme in my life is how everything's been possible. Everything I've wanted, I've, I've been able to get, but it came at the price of having marriage and having children. I, I navigated a path that uh, is m- more possible for men than it is for women. Yeah. And, and that's non-trivial. I mean, I've heard people say, oh, you do amazing things in your life. I want to say to them, well, so does everybody. <laughs> when they don't have to make decisions for anybody else, it becomes harder when you've got others dependent on the choices that you make. No, absolutely. I I feel very, very proud to have been in the room and to have been of service to -hmm. some of these great, great, great musicians over the course of my lifetime. Um, Very privileged and I worked my ass off in order to be worthy of those opportunities. I never took it for granted. I never thought, oh, I deserve this. Hell no. I always thought I can work harder. I can do more. I'm not as good as the best. I'm doing the best mm-hmm. I can. And uh, that that has served me well. In the, the book that'll be out in September, I don't know how it's gonna do, but I've got a book tour coming up. So I'll be doing a lot of different events in different places. So um, I'll have dates- pardon? The dates of that, when you do these the, the book events, like uh, I'd like to promote it for you in the video. What, what's the, is there any links or anything you'd like us to post? Um, just this coming week is when we're going to update our little nascent website called thisiswhatitsoundslike.com. On the media and events page, our web designer is going to add all the bookings that I've got so far where I can appear and maybe do a reading and... Um, take people's questions. I was going to say there are some Prince stories in that book. It's not about Prince, but there are some Prince stories in there that illustrate a few points. And I'm always eager to take people's Prince questions. Uh, this is what it That's sounds right. like.com. Is there, is there a Facebook page or any other, anything I can. I don't have Facebook the- yet. No, I don't have anything like that or Instagram or any of that stuff. And I think the, the kids are going to help me get that by the kids. I mean, former students. Yeah. Okay. Towards the the end for Prince, he was mentoring uh, Joshua Welton in in sort of production and engineering. Did have you taken anyone under your wing with everything that you've all of the experience that you've got? Have you mentored many? Yeah, I think students? all the students that I have and all the classes that I've taught um, on record production at Berkeley. Um, I'm, I'm trying to help these people have a life in music. Some of them will have it, some of them won't. Um, my friend Tim is a sculptor and he says, a life in the arts is a life in problem solving. There will always be more problems than you will ever see in your entire lifetime. You'll never have it all figured out. Your life is going to constantly be one of being presented with problems, that day's problem, 
and figuring out how to solve it. It might be familiar to something you've seen before, but if you're in the arts, yeah, it's going to be slightly different. You're going to you get a different problem to solve. So I've I've spent a lot of time mentoring people and helping them have a life in the arts and also helping them realize it's your life. If you don't want it, you can have a different life. I mean, yeah. it, the, the success is whatever you think it is, whatever it is to you, not what it is to Beyonce or someone like that. Success is what you think it is. You won't get everything you want, but you'll get the things you want the most. So Absolutely. understand yourself and understand what you want the most, because those other things are going to have to fall by the wayside. I'm quite certain that Prince would have liked to have had um, a stable marriage and a lot of children, a lot of things he was not able to get, but he got mm -hmm. the thing he wanted the most. Yeah. Yeah. If I could, this is uh, quite a dark question, I suppose, but if I could put you in Chanhassen in April 2016 with no ability to change the final outcome, what would you do? You mean before or after he passed? Before. Yeah. I would want to know. I would want to know if he really felt in control of his destiny. On a, on a deep level, I suspect he knew exactly what he was doing and was ready to go. I think he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. And I, I'd be curious to know if that was indeed the case. It's what I suspect. I actually, maybe it's what I want because I'd hate to think that he wanted to be alive and be healthy and that he didn't get the opportunity. I hate to think that. Prince got the things he wanted, things he wanted the most. So I just want an answer to that question. I'd want to know if I could ask him that before he died, is this really what you want? I'd like to know what his answer would be. Yeah, same, same. Yeah. And on a, on a brighter note, uh, Starfish and Coffee, Cynthia Rose, one of the you know greatest characters to appear in, in Prince's songs. Did he ever put two and two together that Cynthia and Rose slide the family stone, given how huge a fan he was of that band? I might, that might have been on purpose. I don't know. Susanna Melvoin. Okay. No. But uh, it could have also been a coincidence. Maybe that was her real name. So it was a young woman that uh, she was a child, a girl at the time that Susanna went to school with. And Susanna and Wendy went to this advanced school um, in Southern California. And there were kids of every stripe at this school, including kids with developmental disabilities. And Cynthia, um, Susanna actually just saw her. She met with her not too long ago. Um, Cynthia was a student there, and those were real words that she would say, starfish and coffee, when you asked her what she was having for lunch. And Prince was so taken with the story, delighted by it, that he wrote a song based on it and gave Susanna co-author credit. But that's, you know, that, that's an interesting question. I could ask Sue if that's, is that her real name, Cynthia Rose, or was that just a coincidence? Mm -hmm. Do we have any Patreon questions? Uh, I, I think I, on my end, um... Ellie, uh, I have to almost decipher them, but uh, maybe you have a better interpretation of what he was asking than I than I do. I, th I think we covered uh, to a large part uh, the, the I think questions so, yeah. that Ellie was was asking. Um, yeah. I've got a couple uh, to just kind of uh, 
bring things home if if that's okay. Yeah. So we we know a lot about the man now since he's passed, far more than we did because obviously he liked to, to be an enigma. We know as much as we can through the music. Do you think there's anything, not that we don't know about him, but perhaps what we think we know the perception is incorrect? Mm. Yeah, I think the fans have a pretty good bead on who he was. People who don't know his music as well tend to assume he was uh, lewd or lascivious. I've been asked questions in interviews, <laughs> which are easy to deflect, uh, questions along the lines of whether or not he was abusive to women. Not in my experience. It wasn't abusive to me. So I believe that there's some wrong thinking out there about who he was or twisted or exaggerated thinking. But I think the people who are his fans and love his music, I think they have a pretty good sense of who he was. Um, as for other aspects of him, I, I really don't know. I saw him when he was making music. That's when he and I were in the same room together, when he was making music. I like to think that was Prince at his best, and that was the heart of who he was. I got to be with him when he was creatively on output, but other people in his world were with him as a romantic partner or as a boss, you know, when the, mm -hmm. his operations manager or his, his business manager and his business partners at the record label. So other people saw different facets of him that I never saw and certainly know things about him that I don't know. So uh, I think the best way to tell Prince's story is to hear from all of us who worked with him or knew him in all these different areas of his life. And if we tell our stories, the picture that emerges is gonna be an accurate picture of who he was. Yes, and the, the, one of the things I always say is that the best publicity for Prince is Prince. If you put mm -hmm. any live performance on or any rehearsal, it, it sells itself. How, how do you feel about the estate and, and the legacy and uh, how they've handled after, after the death? It's a wee bit of a sensitive question because personally there are some things that I would like to see done differently with Paisley Park and I know nothing. So, uh, it, you know, it's always easy to have an opinion on something, but when you don't have all the information, then to you anything is possible. So <laughs> I, I recognize how naive my viewpoint is. I think Michael Howe and the record labels have done an outstanding standing job, couldn't be better at deciding what to curate and, and what to release, but it's a complicated problem to solve. So there were different oh, yeah. record labels throughout the course of Prince's life. There might be different people who um, have claims to any money that might be made from these pieces of music. That's a tough problem to solve. Mm -hmm. As far as Paisley Park Studio goes, I said earlier that I think I'd like to see these legacy studios like fame and others, Motown, I'd like to see them continue on the tradition and, and be working studios. That doesn't seem to be very possible. Uh, Motown is, it's a tourist attraction. Uh, yeah. Stax in Memphis is a museum. Sun Studios yeah. has done it pretty well. They're a tourist attraction during the day and they're a working studio at night, but it's damn hard. It's damn hard to do. I'd like to see Paisley tilt a lot more toward being a working musical facility in the spirit of Prince. But again, I don't know what problems they need to solve. So I, it's easy for me to propose a solution without knowing what the problem is. 
yeah given your retirement now would you be willing to step back and, and do some bits and pieces around the the prince legacy man what i wouldn't give <laughs> what i wouldn't give to get my hands to be sitting behind at the media console and get my hands on those tapes to push up yeah. those faders again I, i'm just how how blissful that would be to just revel in the things we did. Now, a couple of years ago now, I was invited to come to Power Station, which is owned by Berkeley now, Power Station Studios in New York. And I was filmed for a, an upcoming documentary on Prince. It didn't turn out well. It turns out that these filmmakers um, are actually, they actually have an agenda and the agenda they appear to wanna to be pursuing is that Prince was abusive. And I didn't know that when I said yes to the interview. I was naive and so I went down there. But anyway, the highlight of that trip was they filmed me while I was in the studio and the estate had innocently enough given them uh, digital multi-tracks of some of the things I had worked on. And so I was able to, for just a few glorious minutes, push up faders in that control room and listen to work that we had done back in the eighties. And it just moved me to tears. It was yeah. so, it, it sounded great. It sounded great. And and it brought back those memories so so profoundly. And in particular memories of how great he was. So yeah, that was the right act in the wrong context. I'd like to be able to do that again, but in a different, uh, for, for a, a better purpose. I'd love to see you do it at the celebration week. Oh. I wonder if we can, if we can speak to Michael and maybe when have, they, you know, a half day workshop. That? When are they having? Uh, originally, it was the the week of his passing. It was the annual date. It's now moved to the roughly the week of his birth, so June. But they've just oh. had one this year, a few months ago. I know. Uh, it it would be lovely to sit you in front of the console and you know oh. have half a day where you just bring up, you know, whichever songs. I mean, let's go with sexual suicide and splash mm -hmm. and let you play with the tapes. You know. Yeah, you know. Uh, the what it allows, what the engineer is privileged to be able to do is it allows us to individually isolate every part and appreciate it for its own sake. Many years ago at Sunset Sound, there was a fellow who was doing some restoration work on some Jimi Hendrix tapes. So he was putting the tapes up and I remember it was a warm summer night at Sunset Sound and Sunset Sound is three studios that surround a courtyard, an outdoor courtyard. And this fellow, because not, not many people were around, was working with the door open. So I remember on a hot summer night, being in the courtyard at sunset, <laughs> and hearing the solo track, Jimi Hendrix singing, just his voice, and thinking, this is one of the most sublime moments in my life. Mm -hmm. Just hearing that man's voice soloed. When you're a recording engineer who works with a great artist, that's the privilege that you get to do. You get to sit there and and say to whoever might be listening, check this out. So if something like that could be done with me or any of the engineers who worked with him, how lovely it would be if, if, if that could be filmed and you could say yeah. to your Prince fan, I'm gonna play you something, I'm gonna play you something. Listen, listen to this and just solo that out and say to them, mm, yeah. listen to his favorite reverb. Let's, this is the vocal dry. Let me put on a pinch of what he liked. Listen to this is how he liked his snare drum to sound. Let me mm -hmm. show. Um, gosh, I mean, if I, 
of any artist I'm a fan of, I would eat that up. The closest I can get you to that is if you were to reach out to Wendy and ask her about Christian James Hand, who's a, a DJ out in LA. He's got the stems to Let's Go Crazy. He's done a few sessions with Wendy in oh. front of an audience oh. where they played the stems and, and rarely go to town. Oh. But he has a, a curated radio show where he does it with with studio stems for a lot of songs. Oh, that's great. Now, if the if the estate could do something there where they maybe open up and you know, put a few more tracks out into the world. That could be a real blessing for, for everyone. It'd be great for you to, to throw them up and talk through. There's a book called How to Look at Sculpture, and it sounds silly, you know, how to look at something, you just look at it, but you don't <laughs> just look at it. And uh, the book, this is what it sounds like, is walking people through the listening, different aspects of how we regard music and the listening process. And that would be kind of fun to do for uh, an audience taking a Prince track and actually guide their ear toward, pay attention to this particular aspect, now that aspect, now this other aspect. I'm gonna be seeing Wendy and Lisa in October because I've got a couple of, um, of events, book-related events out in Los Angeles and haven't seen them in a few years. So I'm gonna drop by and mm -hmm. I can talk to them about that. That would be nice. Yeah, great. So uh, Brian? Yeah. Uh, Susan, I, I can't tell you how much how, how much we appreciate having this time with you. Uh, what's going to happen is when, when this gets posted, uh, there's going to be a million comments in the comment section. Why didn't you ask this? Why didn't you ask that? And a lot of people and some of the Patreons and even I'm sure Chris and I will be like, oh, I should have asked that. I should have asked that. So who knows? Maybe we could keep the door open for down the road. Another. Uh, do please. Yeah. yeah do and, please. Uh, you know, I know from both of our perspectives, we thought we could make a really good chat with you because we're kind of looking at things from two different perspectives. So, uh, so this is what it sounds like.com for Susan's upcoming book. And again, Susan Rogers, we appreciate you so much and your time, the wonderful Indeed. stories and uh, everything. It's been it's fabulous. Awesome. Thank you so much. So remember everybody, uh, enjoy this and remember practice hard, but practice smart. And we'll see you soon. <laughs>